very warm welcome to London Seminary, albeit virtually. Uh, we're obviously very disappointed that you can't be with us in person. We really enjoyed having you with us two years ago for um, interpreting scripture with a great tradition. For those students who have arrived in the last two years, you would have enjoyed that series of special lectures. But it's great to have Craig back with us um, this time for contemplating God with a great tradition. So Craig is the research professor of theology at Tyndale University in Toronto, Canada, and he is also a theologian in residence at Westney Heights uh, Baptist Church uh, in that uh, city. So uh, a warm welcome to you, Craig. Well, thanks, Bill. It's, re it's really great to be here. I wish that I could be there in person. It was, uh, we were looking, we we're so looking forward to it. As it turns out, um, my wife is leaving today to go back down to New Brunswick with her dad. She, he's, he's really not well. And so, uh, it, uh, it didn't, and, and with all the COVID things going on, we just didn't feel we could come this fall, but, uh, but we enjoyed it two years ago immensely and uh, looking forward to this week uh, virtually. Okay, okay, that's great. I do apologize it's so early in the morning for you. I just want to remind the students that you have to have mercy on our lecturer uh, every day because now this is what, 20 past five in the morning for you? Yeah, that's right. Okay, okay, that's great. Okay, well, I'm, 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 I'm going to pray for you, and please keep drinking that coffee because I think you probably need it this time in the morning. I'll, I'll pray for you, and then I will leave the time for your uh, enjoyment. Let's pray. Uh, gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fellowship that we enjoy together. Uh, we thank you for renewed fellowship uh, with our brother Craig, uh, even in a different time zone, uh, even if only remotely. But gracious God, most of all, we desire fellowship with you. We desire to know you. We desire to know your presence. We desire to know your blessing. We desire, gracious God, that this morning, as Craig teaches us and leads us in our studies and opens the scriptures to us, that indeed you would come by your Holy Spirit and that you would open our minds and that you would lead us into a richer and deeper and fuller understanding of yourself. And we pray, gracious God, that we might know your blessing, not only in our increased intellectual understanding, but rather that we would be edified, that we would be refreshed, and also that we would be better equipped to preach and to teach your glory uh, to the churches and to the wider world, which so desperately needs a saviour. So we pray, gracious God, that you would fill Craig now with your spirit, help him and enable him at this very early hour, energize him. Uh, to, to lecture and help us to listen and to learn in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Over to you. Okay. Well, were any of you here two years ago at the lectures? Uh, where I don't think any of you were. Um, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to begin with talking a little bit about how this book came to be written and uh, how, we, how I got to this place. And then I want to talk, spend the rest of the time this morning, this first session, uh, getting at the the seriousness and the importance of the question that we're that we're uh, addressing. So, uh, I grew up as a conservative Baptist. Um, I, I attended a small uh, Christian college for the first two years of, of uh, university, and I um, then transferred to a secular. Uh, university to do my BA in philosophy. Um, then I became a, a then I went to a, 
seminary uh, here in, in, in Canada. And then I became a pastor for seven years in two different churches. And after that, I decided to go back and do my PhD at the University of Toronto. And I worked under John Webster um, there. And my major theologian was Karl Barth. And my thesis was on John Howard Yoder. Um, Yoder was a Mennonite uh, pacifist who had studied under Barth. He'd also been a friend of one of my professors at uh, Acadia. So I studied Yoder. And during the 90s, I was um, probably very much a pacifist, Yoder, uh, pacifist Bartian. And uh, although I was still a Baptist, I was uh, now I got involved in teaching at uh, first the university in Moncton that I had been uh, started out at after high school, first there and then uh, here in Toronto uh, at Tyndale. And I was the vice president academic at Tyndale where we um, brought in the, uh, the BA program and the liberal arts program. So it was a Bible college that transitioned to a Christian liberal arts college. And that was my job leading that transition. Um, as I worked on Yoder, my thesis was published and then I did a, a short, uh, another book on social ethics, rethinking Christ and culture. And I got a contract to do a book on the doctrine of God. And my idea was to, um, to write a book on the doctrine of God, expounding a, a social Trinitarian understanding of God as the basis for social ethics. That was the, that was the, the, uh, the, the, the heart of the project. And so uh, then I got a sabbatical and I got an opportunity to teach full time uh, around 2004. And during that time, I began to read the church fathers and I began to, uh, because I had always been convinced that I was a Nicene Christian, but I had swallowed the idea that you hear so often today um, that the um, Cappadocian fathers, the Eastern fathers, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory Nazianzus, uh, and so on, Basil of Caesarea, that they were, uh, they were the, the real Trinitarians in the sense that they emphasized the threeness of God, the, the three persons. Whereas Augustine, on the other hand, the Western church father emphasized the oneness of God. And, and therefore the, the Western tradition developed with a strong emphasis on monotheism and not really taking the persons of the Trinity seriously. That was the narrative. And that narrative has been widespread in the 20th century. It has been uh, the basis of the writing of people like John Zizioulis, uh, Colin Gunton, uh, Stanley Grenz, Miroslav Volf, um, many, many, uh, Jürgen Moltmann, many of the leading theologians of the 20th century have believed this narrative and have put it into practice. Well, as I did my research, I discovered something very disconcerting, and that is that um, among historical um, uh, uh, students of, of the patristic era, among the, the leading scholars of the world uh, in the church fathers, uh, there was no historical basis for this narrative. And, and, and it, was, it was kind of shocking because it wasn't just that, that half of this field was, was social Trinitarian and half wasn't, it was unanimous. Um, the only people who were pushing this narrative basically were systematic theologians, but not historians. And um, there, a book that was very important to me was uh, Lewis Ayer's Nicaea and Its Legacy, which was published around 2008. 
Uh, I read that book so much, I wore it out and had to buy a second copy. I used it in a seminar that I taught several times. And uh, in this book, Ayers, who was a student of Rowan Williams, and who, along with Williams and M.R. Barnes, was at the forefront of the revising this, uh, this uh, whole narrative uh, about uh, the East versus West, three versus one, social Trinitarianism being compatible with Nicaea. Um, that book was, was critical in that process. And, and it, uh, as I read people like Robert Wilkin and Francis Young and John Baer, uh, the leading patristic scholars, it became clear that, um, that pro-Nicene theology in the fourth century between 325 and 381, so I'm not sure how much church history you have in your background, but you know that 325 is Council of Nicaea, and that's where the Arian crisis had broken out around 313. And, and, and at, at the Council of Nicaea, the bishops of the Roman Empire came together and they, um, they agreed on the term homo usios, one being, that God is to be called, the, the, that the father and the son are homo usios, same being. And that term was very controversial. Um, because the Arians didn't like it, which was exactly why they put it in the creed. They tried all sorts of biblical terms. They tried light from light, God from God, very God, very God. Uh, they talked about the son being begotten. They talked about a lot of ways of, of using biblical language to describe the relationship of father and son, but the Arians always found a way to interpret that language in a subordinationist manner. And so the Arians were teaching that the Son was the first and greatest creation of God, that the Son was uh, divine, certainly, but in a secondary sense. Uh, and and they, like, they preferred to say that the Son is like the Father, rather than saying the Son is the same being of, as the Father. And so the, the Council Fathers decided to use the term homoousios to interpret the meaning of what the Bible is teaching, because that, as they understood it, the Bible is not, does not teach that Jesus is merely the, uh, merely a, the first and greatest creature, but that the Son is eternal, and the Son and the Father have always been Son and Father, and the Trinity has always been Trinity. There, there was never a time when God was a monad and then later became a dyad and then a triad. No, the, the Trinity is eternal. And so the son has always been the son and the son has always been of the father in such a way that the father is father by virtue of being father of the son and the son is son by virtue of being son of the father. And that is intrinsic to the very being and essence of God that, that you cannot conceive of God uh, in any other way, but that, well, because they were convinced of that, they, they, they found it necessary to use the term homoousios. But that just ignited a huge controversy. So from 325, for basically the next 50 years, uh, the battle raged back and forth. And there, at one point, the uh, emperor, uh, the son of Constantine, Constantius, was an Arian emperor. And uh, around 360, it was looking very grim for the for the for the for the uh, the, the, the um, Nicene Creed and the Homoousios. It was it was looking like Arian, Arianism was going to triumph. And um, due to uh, largely, um, humanly speaking, the witness of Athanasius and the, the work of the three Cappadocians uh, and others, um, it, as it turned out, the, the, uh, the, the Nicene party won. And in 381 at the Council of Constantinople, the homoousios was reaffirmed 
and the um, and that that creed that comes out of the out of 381, that's what we mean today by the Nicene Creed. That's what you find in the in the prayer books, in the hymn books, and the history books as the Nicene Creed. It's, the, it's technically the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed of 381. And the key thing about the creed is that it reaffirms the homoousios of 325. And that became the standard of Christian orthodoxy from then till now. Um, and so as I worked on this, I, I realized that the that heirs was was that that the way that heirs was presenting this was that there were a, there were numerous pro-Nicene theologies plural around the Mediterranean basin uh, in in Alexandria, Egypt, in Cappadocia, in Rome, uh, Constantinople, in different places. There were different theologians who were expressing things slightly differently, but there was something that had they had in common. And, and what they had in common was the eternal generation of the sun, the uh, distinction between the persons and the being, uh, so that there are three persons, but one being, uh, or essence, usia, and three persons, or hypostases, or uh, that, 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 all these pro-Nicene theologies emphasize the irreducible threeness of God and the irreducible oneness of God and taught that the Father and Son were of the same being. Now, they may have differed in many other respects, but they had this common core. And that was as true of the East as it was of the West. It was as true of the Cappadocians as it was of Augustine. And so, um, and so, I kind of emerged from a multi-year study of the of the fathers, and realizing that um, playing off the three against the one was not responsible. That the that that there is no great distinction between the East and the West, and because I had always wanted to be Nicene, I had never I had never imagined in my wildest dreams uh, that that following this narrative that Gunton and Zizioulis and company were, were advancing, the idea that, that God is, you know, that the Cappadocians were the, were the real Trinitarians and that uh, to emphasize God as three distinct centers of consciousness, I never doubted that that was Nicene, but now I knew it wasn't. Now I knew that the modern idea of social Trinitarianism in which God is three, the Father, Son, and Spirit are three distinct centers of consciousness, three distinct beings that have their own will and their own power, and they interact with each other like a family or like a committee. I, I now began to realize that nobody uh, in the Orthodox, uh, none of the Orthodox theologians of the fourth century believed this. And uh, chapters 14 and 15 of Ayer's book are very instructive because he, he looks at First Gregory of, Nice, of Nyssa, and then at Augustine, and he shows that the two of them are saying the same thing on this point. So um, basically, the whole rationale for my book was now shot. Um, and and so I I had to uh, I had to seriously uh, rethink everything. Out of this experience came my conviction that. Um, that the 20th century revival of Trinitarianism was not really a revival of Nicene Trinitarianism, but that the 20th century revival of Trinitarianism that began with Bark and Rahner and was expressed through Pannenberg and Moltmann and Gunten and Zizulis and, 
and so on. Um, and, and especially the emphasis on social Trinitarianism, the idea that the, thought, the three persons are each persons like we're human persons. So they're like Peter, James, and John in a very close fellowship. I don't know if you uh, read the book, The Shack, a few years ago, uh, but that's a, a very good popular illustration of social Trinitarianism. Uh, and, uh, but, but pro-Nicene theology says that God has one will and one power and one being. And this power, one power, will, and being are expressed in the three persons who are not at odds with each other, but who are or, 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 or agreeing or disagreeing with each other, but, but are simply one at the most fundamental ontological level. Um, so in the 20th century, there was a, uh, an, an attempt to distinguish between the ontological trinity and the economic trinity. I don't know if those terms are familiar to you, but the, but the ontological refers to God in his eternal being as God always is and was. The economic trinity means God as he reveals himself in history by acting in the, in the missions of the Son and the Spirit, the incarnation and the sending of the Spirit. So what we read in the Bible about the Pentecost and the incarnation, well, that's the economic, what's called the economic trinity in action. Now, the, the terms economic and ontological trinity in the, in the modern period are used slightly differently than they are in the patristic period. In the patristic period, they talk about the economy, the economia, and they talk about the uh, and they talk about theology. And when, we, when they say theology, they're talking about God in his eternal being. When they talk about the economia, they talk about history, God in history. And so when you reflect on it, um, what we are, you realize, of course, that what we're seeing when God acts in history is that we are perceiving God from a creaturely perspective. We are perceiving God from within time. And so to us, it looks as though God first does this and then later does that and changes along the way. It looks like that to us. It can't help but look like that to us. We're creatures that are locked in time and space. And as we think about God, the economic trinity in the 20th century, what happens is that the economic trinity displaces the ontological trinity. The ontological trinity basically recedes from view as an important theological category throughout the 20th century. And what happens is that God is historicized. God is, God is conceived of as acting in history, or sometimes in a Hegelian way is the unfolding of history. Hegel talked about the age of the father being succeeded by the age of the son, being succeeded by the age of the spirit. But all of this is, 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 is not compatible with, with orthodox Nicene Trinitarian theology. Uh, in Nicene theology, the, there is always an awareness that as we perceive God with our creaturely minds from within time and space, we are receiving a revelation from God of who he is. But what we see cannot be, we, but we have to be careful not to interpret God's being as if 
he was a being in time with us, as if he was a, a, an entity that was subject to the limitations of time and space the way we are. And much of the confusion in modern theology arises from this point. Um, and so social Trinitarianism is a, uh, an over, it, it's taking what is revealed in scripture to be the full and complete um, revelation of God as he is in himself. And you might say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, what that does is that it equates our understanding of God with what God is, as if the finite could comprehend the infinite. And see, the problem is that when you sit, when you, when you, when you, when you think that God is comprehensible to the human mind, the only way that can happen is if God gets reduced to the level of a creature. Uh, Augustine had a saying that if you comprehend it, it's not God. And the heretic Eunomius, who was the archenemy of the Cappadocians, he believed that we could define God. He believed that it was possible to define God as unbegotten. And so that's why for Eunomius, since God is unbegotten, since that's the real rational definition of the nature of God, well, then only the Father can be divine in that fullest possible sense. And that's why he was an Arian. He then believed that there was a distinction to be made between the being of the Father and the being of the Son, because the Son is not unbegotten. And so the Son doesn't fit the definition of what God is. So what, what, you, what, you, what you learn by studying the Fathers is that the Fathers are, are very concerned to maintain a, different, a distinction between God and, his, God and his eternal essence and God as he is revealed or perceived by us in history. Now, this is very tricky because we don't want to say that what is revealed in history is not true. That's not the point. When God reveals himself as the Son, and the Son reveals God as love, we want to say that God really is love. Okay? We don't want to cast doubt on the revelation of God in history as if. Maybe it's just a facade or an act. Maybe it isn't all true. Maybe he isn't really as he appears to be to us. No, we don't want to do that. What we want to do, though, is to say that when God reveals himself to us, there will always be a component of mystery. God will always be more than what he reveals. Now, this should not worry us, because when you think about it, even humans knowing each other, we never know each other comprehensively. And yet we do believe that we know each other truly. I mean, I know my wife. I trust her. I am convinced that she is who she appears to be. I am convinced of her identity and her history and her character, and I know her well, and I, and I believe that she is what she is. But if you said do I comprehend her completely? No, no, that's impossible. No human being knows everything about another human being and can fully define and understand everything about a human being. Sometimes she does things and I'm surprised. Sometimes she has opinions and I never expected because I don't know her comprehensively. But you don't need to know a human being comprehensively in order to know that person truly. 
Same with God. What God reveals is all true. And yet, God is greater than what he revealed. And when you think about it, how could it be otherwise? How could creatures comprehend the creator? How could finite beings comprehend the infinite? There is no way. So what we need to do is to take seriously the creature-creator distinction. And we need to take seriously the idea that God is beyond the ability of our minds to comprehend. And yet in his grace, he has taken a bit of his own self-knowledge and he has given it to us in revelation and we can reflect on what he has done in, in history and we can know certain things that are very true and we can believe those things and we can put our confidence and trust in those things. Okay, on your slides, I, I talk about this quote that I have in the book from John Webster. And I just want to um, say a word about that quote. Um, because God is simple, he is absolutely and not merely contingently other than the world. The otherness of God is not an instance of correlativity or complementarity. Creatures are not related to God as to a thing of a different genus, but to something outside of and prior to all genuses or genre. Now, it's very important to understand this point. What John Webster is talking about here is the incomprehensibility of God. And he is talking about the creature-creator distinction that I've just been talking about. And we need to understand that God is not just like us, only bigger, older, wiser, stronger. He's not us ramped up to a higher degree. He's not a, a being like us who is uh, who merely excels in many ways. Um, when Moses was watching Yahweh deliver the children of Israel from Egypt, um, it was a contest of the gods. It was Yahweh versus the gods of Egypt. And when you read the, the account in Exodus 1 to 15, this question does arise. What, what, how, what is Yahweh's relationship to the gods of Egypt? Um, is he merely the biggest? Is he the first among equals? Is he the strongest of them all? Is he basically like them, but just more powerful? Is he kind of like the American military compared to the militaries of other nations on earth? where they're three times more powerful or 10 times more powerful than the next most powerful group of nations? Is that how it is? Was Yahweh, was it close? Like was the, was the contest, did he just pull it out in the fourth quarter by a field goal as they say in American football? Or, or like what, what is the relationship of Yahweh to these other gods? Um, now, and, and remember Moses would not have doubted for a moment that these gods were real. Um, they, they exist in the sense that they have ontological reality, uh, but, but Yahweh has conquered them. So Yahweh's in the process of revealing himself to, to, to Israel. In Exodus 3.15, 14, 14 and 15, you have this, this enigmatic saying where, where Moses asks the Lord his name, and he says, I am that I am. Tell Pharaoh that, tell, your, tell the people of Israel that I am has sent you. Well, what does that mean? It seems, to be, it seems to be saying that Yahweh has existence as part of his essence. 
Yahweh simply is. He doesn't come into being. He doesn't pass out of being. He doesn't change. He simply is. As Moses received the revelation uh, that we, we see in Genesis 1, I believe that Moses was reflecting on the Exodus. And I think that what, what, what the way that God revealed the truth of Genesis 1 to Moses was to make him reflect on this question that I'm discussing. What is the relationship of Yahweh to the gods of Egypt? And the answer that Moses realized was true in, by, by means of special revelation from God was that Yahweh is the creator of all that is not him. Yahweh is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And the heavens and the earth is a Hebrew idiom to describe the totality of reality. And that means that Yahweh is actually the creator of the gods of Egypt. They are rebellious fallen angels who are created by God and totally under the sovereignty of God. Well, this was a new doctrine. In the ancient Near East, no other culture or group or religion ever said anything like this. Uh, all, the other, all the other cultures, religions of the ancient Near East in Egypt, in Mesopotamia, in Canaan, were all mythological. And in all the myths, uh, the story begins with chaos, uh, eternal matter. I mean, I mean, if matter is not eternal, it was there in the beginning, and we don't know how long it was there or where it came from. It just is. Uh, so the myths all begin with, with matter in chaos. And then there's a story about a struggle of the gods against the chaos monsters. And finally, the gods establish order, like in the Enuma Elish of the, of the Babylonian myth. And Marduk overcomes Tiamat establishes order, and that becomes the, the story that is the grounding for the religion and the culture. Um, the, the, we, all, we all worship to the gods because they've established the order that allows our crops to grow and the animals to be fertile and civilization to flourish. And so the, the religion is basically worshiping these gods who, to whom the order and structure of the world is attributed. But none of these myths ever talk about a single God bringing everything else into being. And so the mythological gods are always part of the world. Okay, so Marduk is an entity within the world. He's powerful, he overcomes Tiamat, he establishes will, he bends everything, order, he establishes everything by his will. But he is not essentially, he's only different from the rest of creation by degree. He's just the most powerful of the gods. And of course, in the ancient Near East, when two nations, two empires would clash, um, the belief was that the, the nation who worshiped the most powerful god would prevail in battle. And that was, uh, that was the belief. And so you can see how it all fits together that, that they have this, this common mythological worldview in which the gods are basically part of the cosmos and the strongest god is going to defeat the other gods. And you can interpret Genesis 1 or Exodus 1 to 15 in that light if you choose to, but you would be wrong to do so because of the revelation of God in Exodus 3, 14 and 15 and Genesis 1, 1, the idea that, that the, what, is, what is taught in the Old Testament, the, the basis of Old Testament religion, the basis of the Old Testament concept of God is that God is the creator, the transcendent creator. He is not a part of the cosmos. 
The cosmos is merely his creature. There was a time when God was, but the cosmos was not. That's what it means for God to be I am. See, nothing else can be said to be, to have existence as part of its essence. You know, the, the, the sun can exist or the sun cannot exist. You can exist or you cannot exist. You can imagine a horse that exists and you can imagine the idea of horse without a horse existing. Existence and essence in all creatures are separate. But in God, existence and essence are one. Because God simply is. He cannot not be. God is the one thing that cannot not exist. Well, that is a completely new concept of God. That's not Egyptian. That's not Canaanite. That's not Mesopotamian. That's not Indian. That's not Chinese. That's not found anywhere in the world except in the religions that stem from the Old Testament. So that is the foundation of the Christian concept of God. Now, relational theism is my term for a group of different theological positions that we see around us today in the world, um, which are, um, you know, there's, there's pan-process theology and pan-entheism, and there's, um, there's theistic personalism. There's a lot of these different views of God that are existing in the world today. And I've grouped them all together so that you have relational theism versus classical theism. Classical theism is the term that simply refers to the kind of doctrine of God that I've been describing, the transcendent creator. And it says that God is one simple, perfect, eternal, immutable, self-existent first cause of the universe. That's classical theism. We'll, we'll be talking about that extensively today. But relational theism is different. In classical theism, God simply is. And then he brings everything else into existence by an act of his will, not an act of his being, not a necessary act, a contingent act. He decides to create. He might not have created. He didn't have to create. Creation is not an extension of his being. It's an act of his will. And um, so that means that creation is dependent on God in a way that God is not dependent on creation. And that is what relational theism denies. Relational theism makes it a two-way relation. God is changed by the world. The world is changed by God. They evolve together in, in, in time. So uh, theologians like Pannenberg, for example, will say that God will only be fully God at the end of history. Um, uh, the, the, the God develops with history and acts in response to history. Can we define uh, relational theism like open theism? Sorry, say that again. Open theism is uh, the same that relational theism? Yes, exactly. That's a kind of relational theism. Thank you. Yeah, yeah so the, the more impersonal ones that tend toward pantheism tend to be the liberal expressions of relational theism. So pantheism, panentheism, process theology, and then open theism, and what I'm going to define as theistic personalism, tend to be the more conservative expressions of relational theism. So you tend to have this spectrum of relational theisms that go from liberal to conservative. 
And this is where evangelicals get sucked into uh, error is because evangelicals often get on the spectrum at the most conservative end. And they think that the theistic personalism idea preserves the teaching of the Bible. And it does more so than pantheism, but it's still part of relational theism. And that's the problem. So um, we're just about out of time for this first seg segment here. And I just want to uh, uh, mention, <coughs> uh, I just want to maybe bring this section to a close by, by saying that, um, just giving you a, a preliminary definition of classical theism. So on this slide number, um, number four, God is the one and only simple, perfect, eternal, immutable, impassable, self-existent first cause of all that is not God. He is the transcendent creator, not merely a being among beings. And this, this understanding of God is the true interpretation of scripture. This is what scripture means. It's embodied in the ecumenical creeds, Nicaea, uh, Chalcedon, Athanasian Creed, and it's passed on to the Middle Ages through Augustine, and it's developed by the medieval scholastics like Bonaventure and Anselm and others, and it comes to classic expression in the first 43 questions of the Summa Theologica of Thomas Aquinas. That is the classic expression of the Christian doctrine of God where he sums up the tradition and uh, in dialogue with Aristotle, clarifies and develops the tradition and states the doctrine of God in such a way that it really remains unchanged for centuries. Um, this doctrine of God is presupposed by the reformers. It's taught by the post-Reformation scholastics like Turretin and Owen and so on. It's presupposed by, it's, it's in the major confessions, Westminster, the uh, Savoy Declaration, the 39 Articles, the Augsburg Confession, all the Protestant confessions contain this doctrine of God. Uh, Second London Confession, the Baptist one, all of them. It's, it's presupposed by Puritanism and Evangelicalism, and it is held in common by Roman Protestantism and is taught as late as the Catechism of the Catholic Church in the 1990s. This doctrine of God is not what divided Rome from Protestants. The debate between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism has to do with sacraments, doctrine of salvation, doctrine of scripture, the papacy, Mary. It's all about the application of salvation to the individual, the means of grace. That's what the Reformation is about. It's about grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, Christ alone, the glory of God alone. It's about the Reformation solas. And the debate is over whether the Reformation solas better reflect the biblical doctrine of God or whether the Roman Catholic understanding of these things better reflects the biblical doctrine of God. But we both agree on the doctrine of God. So that's important to keep in mind because just because Rome is wrong on one area doesn't mean Rome is wrong on everything. And when you come to the 20th century, you, you quickly learn how many more things there are to be wrong about than, than the things Rome is wrong, wrong about. Uh, yes, question. Yeah. I was uh, reading uh, some, uh, one article of Leonardo de Chirico that uh, probably you know better than me, uh, that he, is, he argues that uh, it is not possible today after 2000 year of uh, divergence in theology, uh, 
affirm that uh, Catholicism, the Roman Catholicism, uh, conceive uh, Nicene in the same way that the Reformed uh, Protestant world uh, conceives, because we approach uh, Nicene with two completely worldview, uh, different worldview, uh, with different theological lens, and therefore. Uh, even our conception of God himself uh, is very different. We, we maybe can use the same terminology, the same words, but uh, very different words. Uh, what, what do you think? You, I, I, you're saying this article is saying that, that Roman Catholics and Protestants don't mean the same thing by the, by the terms they use for God? Yeah, yeah, we can... We can uh, probably try to affirm that nice is a common playground between us reformed and catholicism but uh, and we use certainly the same terminology but the meaning that we understand that we associate with those terminology is very different because of 2000 year of uh, controversy and conflicts in theology areas um I, I would not agree with that. But what I what I would what I would say is that that kind of a statement it applies to theological liberalism. Uh, Jay Gresham Machen talked about how the liberal theology of the 19th century uses many of the same words as historic Christian orthodoxy, but means something different by them. Uh, so, for example, sin. Uh, is a moral transgression of God's law in historic Christian theology. But in, in the 19th century, liberalism redefined it to mean the evolutionary hangovers from our animal past, our inability to, to, uh, to be as altruistic and as loving as we would like to be because of our animal passions. Well, these, these, so, so if you said to a, Protestant, a liberal theologian, do you believe in sin? And that theologian said, yes. It would be the problem is what he means by sin is something different than what the tradition has meant. So I think that that li theological liberalism has done that. Uh, it has it has used words, but changed the meaning. I would say that that is not the case between uh, Roman Catholics and Protestants. That's that is not true. Um, Machen himself said that um, that conservative Orthodox Protestants are far closer to the Church of Rome than they are to theological liberals of their own denomination. And, and that this is why, because, because Rome and Protestants have in common a common doctrine of God and Christ. And, and but we but we have different views on faith and and salvation and the nature of the church. But the but theological liberals don't just disagree with us on doctrines of salvation and, and faith and the nature of the church. They don't agree with us even on the doctrine of God and Christ. And so and so even though you have two Presbyterians, you know, one one liberal, one conservative, and the conservative Presbyterian has arguments with both Roman, Roman Catholics and with liberals. But the arguments with liberals go even deeper because not only the application of the gospel is in question, the very gospel itself is in question. 
Um, so this, this issue in the 20th century, what we see is a departure from historic orthodoxy that is even worse than what the reformers were confronting in the 16th century. Uh, it, what, we, what we see today is a, an actually a different doctrine of God. It's actually, as I'm going to go on to say later today, a reversion to the mythological concept of God that existed before the Old Testament special revelation was given. And um, that that's astonishing. I mean, when you think about how far off the doctrine of God has veered in the 20th century, it's uh, it, it, it's um, and, and how little people understand that. That's the whole point of these lectures this week. Uh, we're, we're getting at the the heart of the problem is that is that the um, whereas some people think that the differences over something like theistic personalism or social trinitarianism are, are just minor theological quibbles. What, what I'm saying is no, they are actually striking at the very heart and basis of the biblical doctrine of God. The question is really one of idolatry: who do we worship? And that, that, is, that is the most fundamental question that, that um, anybody can ask. Well, uh, it's, um, according to my schedule, it's time for a break. So we're gonna take a break and we'll come back and pick up uh, with, this, uh, with this lecture and then go on with the, other, the others uh, afterwards. So, so let's, uh, let's take a 20 minute break and be back um, in your time. This is uh, 11 o'clock, it's 11.06, and we're supposed to go a break from 11 to 11.25, so we'll take from now to 11.25 and then resume, okay? So, welcome back. It's uh, time for, our, for us to uh, proceed. So, we've been talking about classical theism versus relational theism. We've been talking about how uh, classical theism has been the, the position of the Christian church from the earliest fathers all the way to the present time, and how in the 20th century there has been a radical departure from this doctrine and the rise of relational theism. So um, I, wanted, I wanted to look at this uh, statement here from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, um, you notice that the parts underlined in, uh, in yellow um, are, you, you have statements there that reflect classical theism, the one only living and true gods, without body parts or passions, immutable, eternal, immense, etc. So those attributes are attributes that are part of, part of classical theism. But then the, the italicized underlined yellow are what we call personal attributes, loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, hating all sin. And yet the statement is talking about only one true and living God. So there's not two gods. There's not a God behind God. There's not a God who appears to us one way, but actually is another way. There's one God, and he is without body parts or passions. That is, he's simple, and 
immutable, but he also hates sin and is gracious and loving. If you look at the Westminster Confession of Faith and you look at this article, you will notice that there's something that I've left out. And that is that this slide does not include all of the footnotes, which are scripture references. Every one of these attributes is uh, given a proof text from scripture. So what the confession is saying is that the biblical God is all of these things. Okay, so the, 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 the statement is saying that the, that the biblical God, the God of the Bible, is the God of classical theism, and he also is the God who speaks and acts and to judge and save his people in history. Now, the interesting thing to notice here is that nobody in the 17th century saw a problem with that. When the Westminster Confession was written, the theologians who put it together were not struggling with the problem of how to relate these two conceptions of God. They, they just weren't. If you read the writings of the, of the Protestant theologians of the 17th and 18th century, um, they assume that this is the way it is. It, Christianity has always taught this, this view of God, and this is simply what it means to believe in the Christian view of God. Um, so the, it was only in the 19th century that this began to be questioned and problematized. And it was, it was in the 19th century that people began to first say that there is a, um, a conflict between God being simple, eternal, perfect, immutable on the one hand, and God being loving, gracious, and, and hating sin on the other hand. And in the 20th century, a trickle became a flood. And it became the new conventional wisdom that obviously there's a problem here. Obviously, God can't be both. Obviously, God can't be both impassable and loving. The, the interesting question to think about is, why the change? Why, why did people for 1800 years see no problem and then suddenly everybody sees a great problem? It, it makes you wonder if something has changed in the culture that has caused a different perception of the doctrine of God to, to become um, prominent. Like, like, like the people from Athanasius to, um, to say, Francis Turretin or John Owen, they couldn't have been that stupid. I mean, there's no way that thousands of the most brilliant minds of Christendom could have just overlooked this problem. There's no possible way that, that um, all the confessions of the Reformation could have been written and everybody just went, oops, uh, we just we just included the Aristotelian God in in our in our confession by mistake. I mean that just doesn't have any credibility to it. There's got to be a different explanation. There's got to be a different reason why nobody thought it was a problem until suddenly everybody thought it was a problem. Now, of course, by everybody I'm exaggerating because confessional Orthodox conservative Christians don't think it's a problem, 
but the majority in the culture do. So why did that happen? I, I have a theory, as you may have guessed. My theory is that the metaphysical context in which people were thinking changed. When we read the Bible, we bring our metaphysical um, presuppositions with us. Now you might say, oh, I would never do that. But the fact is that we all make assumptions. C.S. Lewis in his preface to the um, uh, to Athanasius's on the incarnation, he talks about the value of reading old books. He says, when you read a book, um, you, of course you are noting what the author argues for, what the author says explicitly, but you should also notice what the author doesn't feel a need to explicitly state. What does the book assume? Every book assumes certain things and every book, uh, you know, no book of theology can argue every single point simultaneously. You have to start with something and then develop from there. And you, you usually identify certain points of conflict and you focus on those points, but that presupposes certain areas of agreement. Well, what do the authors of books assume that they don't need to argue for? And Lewis says, this is the value of reading old books. Because if, you, if all you read are books written in the 20th, 21st century, then all of the people who write those books are operating from a modern worldview. When you read books from the 16th century and the 12th century and the 4th century, you are reading books by people who are operating from a different worldview, a different metaphysical framework. And they make different assumptions about what can be taken for granted. And that's valuable because it helps us to become critical of our own assumptions. Sometimes we assume things that we see as common sense, which are actually opposite to what people in the earlier centuries believed. And I think that's what's going on here. I think that, that modern Christians, both on, across the theological spectrum from liberal to conservative, have uncritically, unconsciously adopted certain metaphysical beliefs from modernity, which are incompatible with the metaphysical beliefs of those who developed the Christian theology from the fourth century to the 18th century. And these different metaphysical beliefs cause us to read scripture very differently. And we're not aware of it. And we'd better become aware because we need to have the metaphysical framework in which we interpret scripture to be reformed by scripture. If we simply bring the metaphysical framework of our culture to bear, we will end up reflecting our culture back to itself. That's the problem with liberal theology. Liberal theology does nothing to really challenge our culture or convert our culture. Liberal theology reflects our culture back to itself. Now, evangelicals can fall into this trap unless we're careful. That's why you go to school. That's why you read books. That's why you get educated. Because you don't want to simply go along with the, the common sense 
of contemporary culture and use that as your metaphysical framework for reading the Bible. You want to, you want to read the Bible in such a way that the biblical metaphysics shapes the way you interpret the scripture, and thus you become truly countercultural. You, you become able to critique the culture at a fundamental level, and you become able to, to resist the pull of the culture into its metaphysical framework. At the very end of the New Testament, the Apostle John in 1 John ends his letter by saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And this is the biggest challenge for the Christian church. It's more fundamental than even the Great Commission. It's more fundamental than personal sanctification. It's more fundamental than uh, having a high view of the Bible. Look, if we're worshiping an idol, nothing else matters. There's no value in converting other people to the worship of an idol. There's no value in being highly dedicated to the worship of an idol. There's no value in, in making idolatry the center of our lives. The only thing that matters is worshiping the true God. And of course, in evangelism, we want to convert others to worshiping the true God. But you have to be worshiping the true God first yourself in order to do that. You know what the, uh, you get on an airplane and, and you, you have the, the masks that fall down when the oxygen level drops below a certain point and, and the instructions say, put your own mask on before assisting uh, the person next to you, right? You, the mother's supposed to put her own mask on first and then help the child put the mask on. And of course, that goes against our intuition. Our intuition is, as a mother, you look at the child and you sense danger. We need oxygen. I need to help my child. That's your first instinct. The instructions say, don't do that. Help yourself first. Be selfish. Why? Well, because if you pass out, you're not going to be able to help your child. We must resist idolatry first as job one. And only then do, can we get on with the, the work of the, of the gospel ministry. Only then can we preach and evangelize and do missions. First, we've got to keep ourselves from idols. And if you read 1 John, he seems to be thinking that falling into idolatry is rather easy. And John Calvin said, the mind, the human mind is a factory of idols. Idol, idolatry comes naturally to the fallen human nature. And so we, it's, not like, it's not like you have to work hard to become an idolater. You just have to go with the flow. You just have to do what comes naturally. You just have to be like everybody around you. Just not think, and you will be an idolater quickly enough. In order to not be an idolater, you have to focus on being different. You have to think. You have to pray. You have to engage in spiritual warfare. Um, any dead fish can, can float downstream, but it takes a live fish to swim upstream. You've got to swim upstream against the culture if you want to resist idolatry. So 
What I'm saying is that our culture has adopted certain metaphysical ideas as common sense. We don't argue for them, we just assume them. They're just in the air you breathe, in the water you drink, uh, they're the default. And when, when, we, when we read the Bible, using those metaphys that metaphysical framework, we see a conflict between the God of classical theism and the God of uh, who speaks in Acts in history to judge and save his people. And the reason that Christians didn't see that conflict before the 19th century is because they had a different metaphysical framework. And when that metaphysical framework changed in the general culture, it has an effect on everybody. And you might say, well, it doesn't affect me because I don't read liberal theology books. You don't have to read liberal theology books in order to have your, your metaphysical framework altered. All you have to do is watch movies. All you have to do is, is just follow the general cultural debates. For example, your kids go to school and they're told that a boy can decide to become a girl and can transition from a boy to a girl by plastic surgery and, and drugs. Is that true? What are the metaphysics behind a belief like that? Well, I would suggest to you that, that, that the metaphysics behind that view are so different from the Christian metaphysics that you've got two completely different worldviews clashing there. And if you, and so what I'm saying is that the world is constantly pressing you into believing things that only make sense within a metaphysical framework that is antithetical to Christianity and antithetical to the metaphys metaphysical framework that was dominant up until the enlightenment, up until the 18th century. And that's why uh, nobody in the 17th century thought that a boy could become a girl by merely an act of will. They didn't think that was possible. They thought that was crazy. Why did they think it was crazy? Because in their metaphysical framework, it didn't make any sense. And in, in the modern metaphysical framework, it does make sense. And so what I'm saying is, if you, if you unwittingly, unconsciously, uncritically absorb into the bloodstream, so to speak, in, and have your mind shaped by the modern culture, um, then you will be doing something equivalent to what was going on in the early church when the early Christians were tempted to, to, uh, uh, to, to fall into accepting the culture around them, the Greco-Roman culture around them. And when John says, keep your keep little children, keep yourselves from idols, you know, think about the culture in which he's writing that. He's writing, in, this is written to, uh, churches in Asia Minor, and Asia Minor was a hotbed of emperor worship. It was a, a place of, of I, great idolatry. I mean, these cities, these Roman cities like Ephesus and, and Colossae and, and Smyrna and so on, um, these cities were just permeated with idols everywhere, temples to idols on every corner. When Paul went to Athens, you know, he his spirit was, was moved. He was upset by the um, by the amount of idolatry everywhere. You go to the Rome and Rome had hundreds of temples to pagan gods. That was the culture in which they lived. 
when John wrote those words, he's writing to people who are surrounded by idolatry. They are swimming in idolatry. Idolatry is the default position. And you have to make a conscious effort to struggle against it. And so the early Christians did. And they, they struggled against the Greco-Roman mythological worldview that was so predominant that, that generated idolatry. They struggled so successfully that in 400 years, they eventually, uh, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire and conquered idolatry and the pagan temples were actually closed. But that wouldn't have happened if Christians had just gone with the flow. What I'm suggesting to you today is that the 21st century is more like the first century than any century in between. The first century that we live in, in the modern West, is as pagan as first century Rome and Athens and Greece. And therefore, we cannot take for granted anymore, like we used to be able to, that at least on the level of metaphysics, the culture was generally right. We can't assume that. We, we cannot assume that when the culture does something that is, goes against Christian morality, we can't assume that that's because they're being inconsistent. Like in the 19th century, if, if you had a prominent politician in Britain commit adultery, you could be pretty sure that everybody would interpret that as a man failing to live up to his, his own ideals. In the 21st century, if a prominent politician in Britain commits adultery, he is simply being true to himself. He is living up to the ideals of modern culture. Now, I, I want to suggest to you that that is very significant. That is very significant because in the 19th century, all you needed to do is if you were that man's pastor, so a politician commits adultery and, you know, a big scandal ensues and everything, and you're the pastor to that man, all you got to do is get him to repent. Pretty straightforward. Repent. In the modern situation, if the same thing happens, you can't even get, you can't even talk about repentance to that person because that person already believes he's living up to the best ideals. He is, he is being true to the mandate that all of us have to develop our individuality and become all that we, we can be. And so he, why would he repent? He's going, to, he's going to argue with you that what he's doing is exploring a new stage of his own personal development. He's not sinning. Because his worldview is so different that his actions mean something different than they would have 200 years ago. That's the situation we're living in. So it's not enough to simply um, operate from within a Christian worldview and call the person to repentance. We've got to get the person to change his own worldview in order to evangelize. So we need to become conscious of where and how these metaphysical shifts have occurred. And we need to understand the difference between uh, the classical Christian metaphysics and the metaphysics of our, of our modern culture. And only then will, be, will we be really able to discern 
where where the doctrine of God goes wrong. Okay. Some things that are very complicated are also very simple. It, it's just there they can be complicated on one level and simple on another level. Man is the worshiping animal. Um, Aristotle famously defined man as rational animal. And that's a good definition of human nature. However, it's also true that we are worshiping animals, that meaning that worshiping is something that humans are built to do. It's not something that we um, normally choose to do. It's something that we just do naturally, part of our nature. And so the, the question is not going to be, do we worship or do we not? It's going to be, what do we worship? Um, and, and, and if you know that about human nature, then you know something very important about human nature. So what are our options? Well, we could worship the creator God, obviously. Um, we could, as in the tradition of Abraham and Moses and David and Paul, uh, we could worship God as the Bible uh, teaches. Or we can worship some aspect of the creation. Uh, we could worship nature as a whole. Or we could worship ourselves. This is common today, self-worship. Ex, ex, uh, individual uh, expressive individualism. Carl Truman's book, The Rise of the Modern Self, very important book. You should read it. Um, it's uh, it, it it explains what 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 self worship is all about. Or we could worship humanity. You know, we could follow that great philosopher Lucy from the Peanuts uh, gang. Charles Schultz is. Uh, she, she says she says I love humanity. It's people I can't stand. And uh, I often relate to Lucy. I, but to love humanity in the abstract, that's what, that can be your, your religion. That, you, know, you, can, you can have a religion of humanity in general in the abstract is what I worship. But really, there are only two basic options. It's either we worship God or we worship some aspect of creation. Those are really the only, the only two options. And number two is idolatry. It's either God or idolatry. Now, the idols can differ. They can shift. We can have different things for idols. But whether we worship humanity, whether we worship ourselves, whether we worship nature, whether we worship the, uh, you know, worship the sun or worship the moon or worship the cosmos as a whole, it doesn't matter. It's all idolatry. As far as God is concerned, as far as the Apostle John in 1 John 5 is concerned, you know, the choices are, are either worship God or worship idols. That's all there is. So, what is Trinitarian classical theism? Well, the church fathers accepted the doctrine of classical theism from the Greek philosophers and modified it. So Plato and Aristotle and a few of the best of the philosophers had managed to discern that there is some kind of eternal principle behind the cosmos that is its cause. In other words, they discerned that the cosmos, that the universe is not simply self-existent. That's the idea of pantheism. The, the mythological cultures before them uh, the mythological cultures of the ancient Near East basically assumed that the cosmos as a whole is divine. 
And so it was a pantheistic understanding. It could easily be combined with polytheism because you could have, you know, gods, small g gods within the cosmos as part of the cosmos. And so the, the, the philosophical intellectual type people could worship the cosmos in pantheism, whereas the common people could have polytheism. They could worship individual gods. You see this in Hinduism. The, the, the philosophical Hinduism is pantheistic, but popular uh, Hinduism is very polytheistic. So polytheism and pantheism can go together. But in, in the rise of Greek philosophy in the in the, cent, the five centuries or so, six centuries before Christ, what was so different there was this distinction between God and the universe. They were groping like they were groping their way toward a concept of God as transcendent. They didn't quite get there, but they at least they were willing to admit that at least they were able to see that there is something behind the cosmos that is not just reducible to the cosmos, which is the cause of the cosmos. And Paul in Romans chapter one suggests that this is possible. See, he says that, that human beings know that there is a creator. When you look out, when you go out at night and you look up at the starry heavens, it's hard to believe that all this just happened by chance it's much more rational to believe that there is a creator. And so Paul suggests that the problem, the reason why people don't worship the creator is not because it's impossible to know that there is a creator, it's that we suppress this knowledge by our sinfulness and our selfishness and we refuse to be grateful and we refuse to worship God. So it shouldn't come as any great surprise that a few of the best philosophers somewhere would come to the, the idea that there is such a thing as God. But one thing that the philosophical tradition was never able to do was to explain to anybody how we could become one with God, how we could have a relationship with God, how we could be reconciled to God. They, philosophy couldn't do that. Christianity came along with the answer. And because Christianity teaches not only the existence of a first cause, but Christianity also teaches that God has sent his son to become incarnate and die for our sins and reconcile us to God so that we can have union with God. We can have fellowship with God. We can be uh, joined to God in some way. Well, that no philosophy ever taught that. So the, the biggest issue then was how to state the biblical teaching that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit without violating the principle that there is only one God. And you might say, well, why did God reveal the Bible in the way he did? Why does the Old Testament come before the New Testament? Like you all know that, that the Old Testament is the biggest part of the Bible, right? Uh, the New Testament is just a small, um, I, I have an Old Testament professor friend who, who says, preach the gospel at all times, when necessary, refer to the appendix. He, he jokingly calls the New Testament the appendix because the, the main Bible is the Old Testament. The New Testament functions as a kind of a hermeneutical key to understanding the rest of the Bible because Christ is the key to understanding Scripture as a whole. That's what the message of the New Testament is. The New Testament is saying 
that Christ, the incarnation of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, is the, the key that unlocks the meaning of the whole Old Testament, right? So if that's true, then it seems as though God spent a long time revealing something very important that would form the foundation of the New Testament. And what he spent a long time revealing was monotheism. It took a long time for God to get through to the Jews that there is only one God, one true God. Now, sure, there's lots of small g gods. There's the gods of Egypt, the gods of Canaan. There's the God of this world who is Satan. There's a lot of fallen angels posing as gods. Sure, they exist. They're real. They're not on the same level or of the same kind as the one true God. And it took a long time for God to reveal himself to Israel in such a way that Israel finally got it. Because, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot of idolatry in the book of Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and in the books of Samuel and Kings uh, and, and, and Chronicles. There's a lot of idolatry. Um, in fact, the idolatry between the, between the monarchy, well, between the entrance into Canaan and the, and the exile, 586 BC, Israel is just into idolatry constantly. And the prophets come along and they say, if you keep this up, God's going to destroy the nation. And finally, it happens. 586, the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, take the people into captivity. And as, as, as the psalmist and, and others, as they... Uh, the editor of the Psalms and others, as they reflect on this disaster, they conclude that the reason Israel has gone into exile is idolatry. And finally, after the exile, the Jews kind of get it. They become at least a lot more resistant to idolatry. And the, the whole, uh, they finally get the point clarified and solidified that the basis of everything else is to believe in the one true God of Israel alone. And then and only then are they ready for the incarnation. If God had, had started with the incarnation, it would inevitably have been interpreted in a polytheistic way. Because it would have been interpreted within the mythological context of the ancient Near East. You know, that's exactly what's going on today. The problem with modern systematic theology is that it is interpreting the incarnation and the Trinity in, the, in a mythological context. And it is, it is interpreting these things in the context of, in, such a, in, in the context of a metaphysical worldview that is basically pantheistic and polytheistic. We have reverted to a pre-Christian metaphysical worldview in the modern West. That, that's the problem. So during the 18th century, there was a, a rejection of Christianity and a growing belief that faith and reason are in conflict. So if God is immutable, how can he act in history? You might say um, the problem of immutability uh, has to do with, you know, statements in scripture where it says that God repents or 
statements where it says that God changes his mind or when God forgives. Well, actually, the problem is worse than that. It's even more fundamental than that. Um, how can God act in history at all if he's immutable? I mean, that's another problem. But it's even worse than that. It's even more fundamental. If God is immutable, how can God even create? How can God create ex nihilo out of nothing? How could he bring something into being that wasn't there? And so um, that's what that's what the the 18th century began to wrestle with that question. And the 19th century saw the rise of romanticism, in which the myth of the romantic hero challenging the establishment became prominent, and the idea of science versus religion became uh, a, me, uh, a theme. The, the Warfare of Science and Religion uh, was a name of a book by Andrew White in 1894. And the idea came to be that the scientist should be an iconoclast who challenges the dominant idea of the, of the culture. Where does that idea come from? Why is that idea so prominent in the 19th century? It's because what you're seeing in the 19th century is a revolution against the Christian metaphysical framework. You're seeing a new paganism arise to oppose Christian metaphysics. That's what's really going on. Um, and so uh, science was pitted against the Bible. But notice what science means here. This is so ironic. Science emerges out of Christianity. Science is possible because of the Christian doctrine of creation. God creates the world out of nothing, according to Logos. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was God. Well, what is the Logos? Well, it's, interesting. it's an interesting word. Um, the Logos in Greek philosophy was a principle of rationality at the heart of the world. So in Stoic philosophy, the Logos was reason. It's very interesting that the Apostle John would choose that word to describe the Son. Obviously, John chapter 1 is reflecting on Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And John reflects on that and says, in the beginning was the word, and God said. And John identifies the word with the son, with the logos. And so God, used, God when God said, let there be light, what, what, what kind of activity is, is happening then on days one to six? Well, it's a, you see light being divided from darkness, sea being divided from land. You see, you see the different categories of creatures being created. Uh, fish and birds and mammals and humans. What you see is a chaotic mass of matter that is dark becoming an illumined, structured, ordered, beautiful creation. And it's happening by Logos. And man, it says in Genesis 126 and 27, is created in the image of God. And theology contemplates that. What does that mean? 
what does it mean that human beings are in the image of God? Well, it means a lot of things, not just one thing. But part of what it means is that humans have reason. Human beings can reason about the world of the, that they experience in a way that animals can't. Animals engage the world through instinct, but humans have the ability to reason. Humans are in the image of God in that the same logos by which God ordered and structured the world is part of the reasoning capacity of the human being, which means that the human mind can grasp the order and the principles of order in the creation. That means the human beings can do science. Human beings can grasp the structure and order of the world. Um, there was no science in Babylon or Egypt or Canaan. Science emerged in a Christian culture because of the Christian metaphysic. Now, what's really interesting is that science in the 19th century is turned into an ideology. It is turned into an anti-Christian ideology. It becomes the symbol of a pantheistic worldview. Now, this is really weird when you think about it. It's, 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 a, it's a real inversion because science becomes a symbol for how we understand the world from an evolutionary myth. So what is going on is that the Christian worldview is being subverted and replaced by something that is supposedly modern and progressive, but turns out to be a reversion to the ancient mythological worldview of the cultures surrounding Israel. Well, during the 18th century, the doctrine of the Trinity was, went into eclipse. It, it just was not prominent at all. And Trinitarian classical theism was rejected. And then when we have the revival of the, of the doctrine of the Trinity in the 20th century, it was done on the basis of a non-Christian doctrine of God. So I, I use the provocative phrase in my book, pagan Trinitarianism, to describe the Trinitarian theology that emerges in the 20th century, because it's pagan in the sense that Yes, it's, it's Trinitarian and that it talks about threeness and God, but the God of which it's talking is a God who is another name for the cosmos, not the transcendent creator. And so therefore, the, the, you know, the, the, when, when people talk about Trinitarian theology, some people are very naive about this. They think that any doctrine that includes an account of Father, Son, and Spirit as all being God must be Trinitarian. But that's not all that it takes for it to be Trinitarian. In order for it to be Nicene Trinitarian, it must be a doctrine of God that talks about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three persons who are all one being, but that being must be the transcendent creator. That being must be the one of classical theism in order for it to be Nicene. So you've got to, it's like a shell game and you've got to keep your eye on the P. Um, just because it's Trinity doesn't mean it's Christian. You might find that shocking. 
But remember, that's what theological liberalism does. It redefines terms to mean something that they never meant before. So now Trinity is polytheism restricted to three only. Trinity, in, in modern liberal theology, the doctrine of the Trinity becomes a doctrine of polytheism, but instead of having hundreds of gods, you only have three. But you understand the, the relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit in the same way as you would understand the relationship between Apollo, Zeus, and Jupiter. That's what I mean by pagan Trinitarianism. And it's, it's just not a revival of Nicaea. It's something new. It's, uh, it's something, it's really, it, it's new in the sense that when we used to have pagan mythology, like in ancient Egypt, ancient Near East, um, there was no, it was very clear that the biblical revelation was in conflict with it. You know, when, when the Israelites uh, interacted with the other ancient peoples, um, their idea that there's only one God that you worship was so radical and so different that it set them apart. So there was a very clear distinction between the faith of Israel and the faith, faith of the pagan nations around them. Today, the distinctions are blurred because there's an attempt to combine Christianity and paganism by, via this, this uh, new understanding of God. So what is the myth of evolution? Well, I don't know what you think about Darwinism and, and evolution and so on, but I want you to think about how it functions in our culture. And what I mean by the myth of evolution is that um, it's, a, it's a metaphysical framework in which we understand all of reality. It's a, it's a pantheistic metaphysics. And, and all of the scientific facts, okay, so you dig up a dinosaur bone, uh, that's a scientific fact. You, 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 you accumulate data, you measure things. Those are scientific facts. You look, you observe the uh, similarities between different creatures, different, different uh, kinds of, of animals. You accumulate many scientific facts, but these facts all have to be placed and interpreted within a framework. There needs to be some kind of overarching framework that you that you put these facts into. And what I what I what I think has happened in the 19th and 20th century is that the old framework of the old Christian metaphysics based on the doctrine of creation has been replaced by a new pantheistic framework of evolution. And so when when we talk about evolutionary biology, we're talking about studying living organisms within the framework, within the metaphysical framework of evolution. So, relational theism is the kind of doctrine of God that you can, that fits within the modern evolutionary myth or within the modern metaphysical framework. Um, and, and here's the spectrum. So for, on the most liberal side of the spectrum, you have process theology. And there's no personal God at all. God is just part of the cosmos. He's a dimension or an aspect of the cosmos. 
then you have pantheism, which is just saying that God is the world, the world is God. Then you have panentheism. The world is part of God, but God is more than the world. Um, you have theistic mutualism, and that's the term that is preferred by, this, by the author of this book, All That Is in God by James Dolzell. You must read this book. Uh, every pastor must read this book. Very important. Uh, because he, he shows that, um, you know, um, that this kind of relational theism that I'm talking about has made its way into uh, evangelical Christianity, even into reformed and conservative evangelical Christianity. And he names names and gives examples. Um, and so you, you really should read this book. It really is, uh, it's a short little book. It's only uh, 140 pages. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's making a similar argument to what I'm making here in the sense that it is saying relational theism is here, it's prominent, and it's bad. Um, and so you, you really should read it. Um, I want to spend some time talking today about theistic personalism, the most uh, conservative form of relational theism. What is theistic personalism? And uh, I think I'm going to take, I, I think I'm trying to follow my um, schedule here. Um, we're supposed to take a break now, just a five minute break, I believe. Um, uh, somebody has changed the uh, picture so I can now see you sitting in the classroom. And um, I understand that, uh, that there are, I can see that there are three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, but a, around a dozen of you in the classroom at the seminary. Um, and then there are about eight others um, so, uh, um, those of you that are individually in your own offices or rooms, are you also students of the seminary? Yes. Okay. So some of you are, are doing this, this, these lectures online from home rather than coming into the seminary. Okay. That's what it is. Great. Well, let's get back to work. Um, I'm, I'm going slower through these slides than I thought I would, and uh, uh, I, that always happens to me. All right, let's, let's think about theistic personalism. Okay, this term was coined by philosopher of religion Brian Davies in his book, Philosophy of Religion, and uh, he coined it in the 80s, and it has caught on, become a, a term that has be, been discussed widely now. And he, he, he's, he presents it as the alternative to classical theism, and it stresses that God is a person. Now, sometimes I startled my students by saying, God is not a person. And, uh, you know, that kind of got their attention. But what I mean to say is that God is personal, but he's not a person. It's dangerous to think of God as a person. Uh, because what we're doing is we are conceiving of God in our own image. Now, if you think about what it means to be a human person, we are defined by our limitations. The individuality of persons arises from the fact that each of us has different limitations. So I don't know very many languages. 
I'm short. I'm too short to play professional basketball. Um, I I am uh, I am limited in my life experience. I've only lived in a few places. Um, I haven't traveled the entire world, so I'm limited in many many ways. I also have certain strengths, and I have certain aspects of of competency that others don't have. So each human is limited in different ways. And that's what makes us unique as individuals. What does it mean to conceive of a being who has no limitations? What does it mean to think of God as absolute, as having no limitations of any kind? What kind of person has no limitations? Well, this is difficult for us to even conceive because we're, we're, we're saying that God is transcendent, which means that he is more than, um, he's not just a, a bigger than, a, different from us by degree, but in kind. He's a, he's a different kind of being. And there's really no reason, no good reason to suppose that God is just like us, only bigger or wiser or older or stronger or whatever. There is no reason to think that. But that's exactly what modern theology tends to do. It tends to think of God as a person. Um, Descartes defined a, a person as a thinking thing, a thing that thinks. That's the Cartesian understanding of, of a person. And I can't get into Gnosticism this morning, but it's it's really a very Gnostic idea. Uh, the 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 the, the post-Christian uh, religion that dominates our culture today, what some people refer to as the the woke religion, it's very Gnostic. Uh, and and one feature of Gnosticism is that the body is not important. The real you is the disembodied ego, the self. And um, again, Carl Truman's book on the rise and triumph of the modern self, uh, essential reading on this. So from, for all of modernity, from Descartes all the way to the present, there has been a growing acceptance of the idea that the self is the disembodied ego. The real me is myself, which is not physical. The body is a tool upon which I exert my will. The body is a thing that I use to do, to do things. I get pleasure from it. I can accomplish things through it, but the body is just essentially a tool. There were two kinds of Gnosticism in the early church. One, one kind was libertine and one kind was ascetic. So one kind said, we've got we've to beat the body into submission. We've got to discipline the body. We've got to keep the body from, from uh, having any... Um, from, from satisfying its urges. We need to, to minimize bodily passions in order that the spirit can be everything. Uh, the other view said, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. You know, you can overeat, you can engage in sexual excess. It doesn't matter because the body is not that important. Both views of Gnosticism agree that the body is not anything very important and it's not essential to the self. Well, what has happened in modern uh, philosophical theology is that theistic personalism takes God to be a disembodied self. 
a a a a a well the same thing as a human self conceived of in this Gnostic way. Um, so theistic personalism will say that God is creator, but when they say that God is creator, they don't mean exactly the same thing as classical theism means. For classical theism, for God to be the creator means God is upholding the creation in existence at every moment of every day, every second. God is the is continuously the the fully actualized actualizer, the one who, who causes everything to happen and keeps it going. Whereas theistic personalism sees creation as an act in the past. God did something to bring the cosmos into being, but now that it's now that it is in existence, it it runs on its own. It's self it's self-existent. Um, Theistic personalism also differs from classical theism in that theistic personalism sees God as being in time uh, with us. And so they read biblical texts that describe God as repenting, like uh, Genesis 6, for example, um, or changing his mind. They read those literally, which is a kind of a naive hermeneutic because when, when it talks about God's nostrils or God's right arm or other body parts, they don't read those literally. They don't think that God literally has an arm, but they think that God literally repents. That's interesting. Um, but theistic personalism does so because of their metaphysical assumptions. And one of their metaphysical assumptions is that God is a person like we're a person. And uh, it's kind of hard almost to talk about this because I don't even agree with their definition of a person, let alone agreeing that God is a person like, like that. So I think a person is a body-soul unity. Um, I, I, to be a human person means to have a body and soul. And so a human being without a body is not a complete human being. And it means that I am my body. My body is me. So um, from a Christian perspective, because we believe that human beings are embodied creatures, that we're created with a body-soul and the body-soul unity, the soul being the form of the body, this means that, that the real me is the embodied me. Well, that's very anti-Gnostic. That's, uh, that's very, very different. Um, if modern people believed that, that the body is part of their essential identity, um, they, might be, they might take some very different approaches to sexual ethics than they do. Um, so theistic personalism, um, is it Christian? I would say no. I would say that theistic personalism is not Christian. So this gets us to the heart of the problem with modern theology and relational theism in general. Theistic personalism is like polytheism in that the concept of God in theistic personalism sees God as a being in time, part of the cosmos rather than as the transcendent creator. God is more like Marduk than like Yahweh. 
in this understanding. The God of relational theism is not the God of the Bible. So um, that's a pretty radical uh, conclusion to come to, but that's that's the conclusion that I that I come to. I think that uh, um, there are, you know, even there are. I don't know if you read any analytic theology, analytic philosophy, but there are books of analytic theology being written today, in which, um, like Oliver Crisp, for example, analyzing doctrine. Oliver Crisp is now at St. Andrews University. Uh, head of a, 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 a the institute there that is devoted to promoting analytic theology. There's uh, analytic theology is a growing movement in theology today. But in that book, Oliver Crisp is trying to wed uh, or merge theistic personalism and classical theism, trying to take some from each and create a new model of God. I don't think that this is possible. I think what we're dealing with in theistic personalism is a challenge to the Christian doctrine of God. Uh, it's a fork in the road. We have to go one way or the other. We can't go both. Um, so that, that's, that's the first lecture. And that's the, um, that is basically uh, sets up our discussion for the rest of the week. Now, the rest of today was going to be the, 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 the what, I, what I want to accomplish with the rest of the, our time together today is to uh, flesh out the concept of classical theism. And, um, and then to close with a short uh, discussion of what's wrong with biblicism. So I'm just looking at my time here. And um, uh, I, I think what we'll do is, um, um, we will spend some time now on uh, a, sh a short time going through classical theism. And uh, let me just uh, pull up my lecture. So we're, we're looking at lecture two and three on classical theism. And this lecture two and three is basically a summary of the chapter two in the book. So if you've read the, the chapter two in the book, uh, there are 25 theses, um, which I, I, I just sort of wanted to summarize in a chapter um, the, the historical orthodox doctrine of God. The, the goal is not to say anything new or different, but simply to sum up the tradition and to say, this is what Christians have traditionally believed about the doctrine of God. And um, uh I just want to say, make a comment about the Hellenization thesis. Are you familiar with this term, the Hellenization thesis from New Testament studies? Um, so in the, in the 19th century, people like Adolf von Harnack and others promoted this. Um, and the Hellenization thesis is basically saying that in the early church, in the second, third, fourth centuries, what happened was that some of the church fathers read Greek philosophy into the Bible. So the Hel that's Hellenization. That's what they mean. And uh, essentially, they, 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 they put forward this, um, this, this sharp distinction between Greek metaphysics and the Hebrew uh, mentality or the Hebrew worldview. 
um, so th they they said that that the Bible is Hebraic. The Bible has a Hebraic way of understanding the God-world relationship, and it's different from the rationalistic Greek metaphysical way of reading the God-world relationship, and that the emergence of orthodoxy, you know, the Nicene Creed in the fourth century and so on, that that was the triumph of Greek metaphysics over a biblical understanding. That's the Hellenization thesis. It's basically that the Hebraic biblical understanding of God was overwhelmed by the Greek metaphysical conception of God um, in the early church. So liberal 19th century liberalism pushed this idea very hard. And um, what they basically said was, if you want to interpret the Bible correctly, it's imperative that you renounce the Hellenization of the gospel. And that means that since that Hellenization is embodied in all the major creeds and confessions of the church, you need to, you need to get rid of those and just do your exegesis without reading in Christian doctrine. Now, if you've ever uh, been involved in doing New Testament studies in the university context, uh, you will have encountered the idea that you should not read doctrine into the Bible. You should not read scripture as if you already knew that the Nicene Creed was true. And what, what's going on there is that it's what's behind that is the Hellenization thesis, the idea that that um, Greek philosophy should be rejected, that that the Hebraic guy. Now, now what's what's interesting is that the what they call the Hebraic understanding turns out to be an interpretation of the Old Testament in its historical context. Oh, and what's his historical context? The mythological culture of the ancient Near East. This is why there are many Old Testament scholars today. There were many liberal ones in the 19th century, but many conservative evangelical ones in the 20th century who read the Old Testament as mythological. They see a continuity between Genesis as myth and the, and the ancient Near Eastern cultures around them the myths of the ancient Near Eastern cultures around them. So for example, uh, one, one way that this comes out is, um, I don't know if you've done any research lately on uh, interpreting Genesis one and two, or the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, but I could show you um, books written by evangelical scholars from evangelical seminaries published by evangelical publishers, which will tell you that Genesis 1-1 does not teach creation ex nihilo. Now, Athanasius, the Cappadocians, Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, Calvin, Luther, Turretin, Owen, all believe that it teaches creation ex nihilo, but it doesn't. They're all wrong. Well, how do they come to that conclusion? How do they know that the entire tradition of Christianity has been wrong and they're right about this? And why is it that their view of Genesis happens to coincide with the view of 19th century 
liberal theology. It's because they, it's because of, of their application of something called the historical critical method. And what is the historical critical method? It is saying that the meaning of the Old Testament text is what the ancient or, or what the original human author meant to say in the original context. Now you might say, what's wrong with that? Well, here's what's wrong with that. If Genesis 1-1 means what the original human author could have meant given the historical context in which that author wrote, namely the mythological cultures of the ancient Near East, then Genesis 1-1 must be teaching myth. Does it not follow as logically as day follows night? I mean, think about it. If you reduce the meaning of the biblical text to nothing but its historical context, then the text can never challenge its historical context. It can only reflect it. And if you reduce the meaning of the text to what the original human author could have meant in that historical context, well, then, then you're defining what the human author could have meant by the human author's context. So Moses comes out of Egypt. So Moses uh, could only have in his mind ideas that were current in the culture of Egypt. Or if you say that uh, Genesis was really written by a, um, a later um, uh, scholar in, 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 say, the 5th century BC in the exile, well, then Genesis could only mean what was in the cult, could only express ideas that were in the culture in Babylon or wherever that was in the 5th century. Well, once you, you know, once you interpret the Bible according, in, according to those rules, um, you know, computer programmers have a saying, garbage in, garbage out. Like once you set up the system in such a way that all that the text can mean is what, it's his, what it, are ideas that are already existent in its culture, you have effectively undermined revelation. You have effectively eliminated revelation. Because then the text cannot say everything Egypt believes about God is wrong. It couldn't say that because, because where would Moses get the idea? So inspiration means that God reveals his truth through the text of scripture, which means that he works in the, in the minds of the prophets to give them knowledge and ideas they could not derive from their culture. And this is why 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11 um, makes this distinction between the um, between the revelation and the, the human author's own intention. So if you if you look at first first Peter chapter one verses ten to twelve, uh, this is a key text for me in terms of interpreting scripture with the great tradition. Um, 
First Peter 1 Peter 1.10 says, Concern, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time, listen carefully, the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he, the Spirit of Christ, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they, the prophets, were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So what you see there is the prophet receiving a revelation from God that he writes in the form of a prophetic oracle without fully understanding the meaning of that revelation. The Spirit of Christ gives the revelation to Moses. Moses writes it, and Moses doesn't, he, Moses, before Moses writes Genesis 1, Moses doesn't understand, he, he doesn't get this idea from something in his culture or make it up himself. The Spirit inspires him to write it, and then there ensues a long process by which Moses and other writers of, of the Old Testament contemplate the meaning of this revelation. But the meaning is the divine authorial intention. That is what we're, that's what we're looking for in exegesis, is what does God mean to say through what Moses said, not just what Moses said in his historical context. Question. It is fair to see in the scripture some elements uh, in common with the cultural context uh, from Egypt, Mesopotamia, uh, uh, just to not to don't to 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 don't affirm that um, uh, that uh, it is the the comprehension of the original author, but uh, just because of the author Moses, uh, for example, in this case, uh, uh, displays some uh, common ground, some point of contact, just to make some uh, radical differentiation. For example, the, the Numa Elish uh, account of the creation, Moses uh, maybe uh, took some uh, part of it just to make the clarification, the distinction that uh, actually Yahweh, the God of Israel, uh, is not like that, but is another totally one. Yes, and, and if you've read the book, you know that that's what I argue in, in chapter four. That, that um, So I say... Uh, rather than a historical critical interpretation of Genesis 1, I would advocate a polemical corrective interpretation. I'm, I'm saying that Genesis 1 is a polemic against the, mythology, the myths of, of the ancient Near East surrounding Israel. It's a correction of those myths. And you can see it explicitly because where Enuma Elish starts is verse 2 of Genesis 1. Numa Elish starts with the chaos, and Genesis 1-2 has the, the, the unformed matter that's all dark and is not, it's not ordered and structured yet. But the difference is that there's no equivalent in the Enuma Elish to Genesis 1-1. And there are other differences too. So if you compare Enuma Elish and Genesis 1, you see that whereas in, Enuma, in, in the Enuma Elish you have conflict struggle and the God fighting against the chaos monster. You see opposition to God. Genesis, no opposition to God, no struggle, no battle. Now, 
some people say that um, there are, in my book, I talk about how uh, certain uh, passages in the Psalms talk about the struggle of Yahweh against the seed dragon, the, the Leviathan. And uh, so what, what historical critics, critical scholars do is they take these passages where Yahweh is portrayed as struggling against the, the monsters. And they say, look, that's mythology. That's just like Enuma Elish. They overlook one salient point. In the Bible, all of the struggle of Yahweh against the forces that oppose Yahweh happens after the fall. The struggle of Yahweh against the sea monsters is a struggle of, it, it's basically a reference there to the Exodus, to the battle between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt and the Red Sea in particular. The, the issue is that yes, there is struggle in the Bible of God against the forces of evil, but that only happens after the fall, not as the creation. In other words, the myths are all starting from a perspective where the fall has already happened. They don't even talk about the fall. They just say the fallen world as we experience it is the normal state of the world. That's the way it always was, as far as they know. I'm suggesting to you that the ancient myths of Egypt, Canaan, Mesopotamia, and other cultures were not just innocent stories made up by humans sitting around the campfire spinning yarns. I'm suggesting that these myths were given to early humans by the fallen angels. I'm suggesting to you that the, that the, that the evil powers who posed as gods that gave these myths to these ancient cultures did so for a deliberate purpose, which was to deflect worship away from Yahweh, to obscure the existence of Yahweh, to pretend there is no creator so that they could usurp Yahweh's place and receive worship themselves. So actually, when Moses writes Genesis, it is to correct the errors introduced into the human race by these fallen evil powers, and actually to go back to the true religion of Adam and Eve. Because Adam and Eve knew that God had created them. They knew Yahweh as the creator. And this knowledge of Yahweh as, uh, of God as creator was preserved through the godly line of Seth. But the evil line of Cain became predominant. And uh, I believe that the, the evil descendants of Cain, both before and after the flood, were very susceptible to being led astray by these evil powers. And, and if you think that this is only the Old Testament, I would suggest you read Ephesians chapter 6. Because Paul is, has the same worldview. For, for Paul, um, the world is, is being deceived by these evil beings, these evil powers. 
these fallen angels, these demons, these, these spirits who are trying to deceive human beings into worshiping them rather than worshiping the, the one true creator. I believe that worldview goes all the way from Genesis to Revelation in the scriptures. So it's polemical corrective. Uh, uh, the way we interpret, the way I interpret Genesis is, and I think this is a theological interpretation, is to interpret it as God revealing the truth to human beings, in this case to Moses and to Israel, um, in order to correct the false teaching that had been introduced into the world and which had become to dominate the human race um, in order to, you know, because that false teaching had become so pervasive, God had to, to specially reveal the truth to a select group of people who could preserve it. And that's what Israel's role was, to receive revelation from God and to inscripturate it and then to preserve those scriptures and to be ready so that when the incarnation happened, it could be understood within the context of a true doctrine of God and its relationship to the world. So the Hellenization thesis, in, to my way of thinking, is, um, is, is an excuse for uh, reverting to ancient mythology. So um, just to write, you know, I, I don't think I have time to run through every slide here, all 25 theses. So maybe what I'll do is just ask you, assuming that you've read the chapter, are, do you have any questions on any of these, um, on any of these 25 points? Um, let's see, how much time do we have? It's 7.50 and uh, 7.50 my time, which is 12.50 your time. Uh, 7.50, we're almost, we're almost at lunchtime. Right, and then I've got lecture four afterwards for another hour. So I do have about an hour before the Q&A. Um, maybe the best thing to do is to, uh, to uh, well, just to start. Yeah, I guess if I start now, I basically got to get the 25 theses done in an hour and 15 if we're going to have the last 55 minutes for Q&A. Um, let, let's just go through them a little bit. Uh, seven, seven, it's uh, 12.51, so we've got about nine minutes before we break for lunch. Am I right? Are you, is that your understanding? We're about nine minutes away from the lunch break? Okay. All right, so we'll, we'll just do a couple of these theses and then we'll come back and do a few more. And the, what I have to say about Biblicism is fairly short. We've covered some of it already. And um, so we'll have time at the end for questions and answers. So thesis number one, Christian theology consists of the doctrine of the church of Jesus Christ derived from Holy Scripture, not the opinions of mere human beings. So um, theology then is, uh, is, is based on revelation. And revelation is superior to um, uh, church tradition and to human reasoning and to experience. So sometimes you may have heard about people talk about the Wesleyan quadrilateral of scripture, tradition, experience, and, and, uh, and reason. 
And uh, as if those four things were all equal in authority, the point of this is to say that yes, those four things all have a place in theology, but that uh, revelation in scripture is the highest authority and everything else is in submission to that. So tradition, for example, the reason that I think that, you know, the first 43 questions of the Summa Theologica um, are the classic definition of God is not because there's some inherent authority in the Summa Theologica that I think is uh, the reason why its doctrine of God is true. The reason why it's it's so important is because the Summa Theologica sums up the tradition as to the, tr the correct teaching of scripture. That's what it, that's what tradition is. It's an argument about what the correct interpretation of scripture is. So there's lots of things in the Summa Theologica that I disagree with. In fact, I tell my students that as you start reading Thomas's Summa Theologica, it's the best part is the beginning part. The further into it you go, the worse it gets. So the, the, the doctrine of God and the doctrine of Christ are the best part of it. And as you get into the later parts with the sacraments and the church, that's, that's not as good. So, you, so it's not that the Summa or Thomas himself has inherent authority. The authority comes from getting a doctrine right. And getting a doctrine right means getting the biblical doctrine. And so I, I argue in the book, and this is something that, you know, has to be done given the Hellenization thesis. But I argue very strenuously in contemplating God that the Nicene doctrine of God, or what I call Trinitarian classical theism, is the right is is the true biblical definition of God, and it, it, the authority resides in the Bible, and the authority of the tradition is dependent on the fact that the tradition interprets the Bible correctly, and tradition is an argument about right like the Arian controversy was all about how do we interpret the bible the arians said we interpret the bible to mean that christ is the highest and first creation the nicene said no we interpret the bible to mean that christ is the eternally begotten son of the father eternal with the father for from all time two interpretations uh tradition the tradition is the argument between them and I believe the Nicene interpretation is the correct one. So the Nicene Creed has authority because it interprets the Bible correctly. It's saying what the Bible really means. And that's why it's authoritative. Theology is the study of God and all things in relation to God. Um, it's very important to, to remember that, that theology is primarily about God. Um, even when we're talking about the church, it's the church in relation to God. Even when we're talking about um, salvation, it's salvation as the work of God. When we're talking about revelation, it's revelation as the revelation of God. The doctrine of God should affect and, and um, influence every other doctrine. The doctrine of God, you know, you, you think of a traditional systematic theology of the loci, God, uh, re God revelation, creation, sin, Christ, atonement, uh, uh, sacraments, church, last things. You think of this list of topics, it's not like when you finish the section on God, that you sort of leave it behind and then take up a new topic on a new basis. 
every one of the other topics after the doctrine of God proper is that topic in relation to the doctrine of God proper. So there really is a unity to theology. And that's, by the way, that's missing today. We, we read a lot of theology books today that don't exhibit that unity. You, especially um, you see books like uh, uh, theology of politics or theology of sex or theology of something. And really what these books, they don't really talk about God. They start from sociological or psychological data or historical data or empirical observations or or uh, intuitions or reasonings, and they talk about the subject. They call it a theology of, but they really mean a Christian discussion of, of X. But that's not really what systematic theology is. Systematic theology is a discussion of each one of those topics in relation to God. And that's something that is very important to, to, to maintain. And one other point here, when we do theology, we are attempting to speak about the being of God. A great deal of modern theology after Kant is um, predicated on the assumption that we can't speak of God. We can only speak of our ideas of God, our models of God, our concepts of God. But classical Christian theology from the beginning has attempted to say certain true things about the being of God. God is immutable. God is loving. God is holy. When we say these things, we don't mean, I have constructed a model in my mind of God as holy, which I think is the superior model to hold. What we mean is, he really is holy. It's a big difference. And, uh, um, much of modern theology in a post-Kantian situation uh, is just really has lost its connection to the tradition at this point. Um, when you when you talk when you when you read books that talk about, you know, we're going to discuss the internal coherence of various models of God, well, that's a very post-Kantian way of approaching it because Kant told Kant believe that we cannot speak of the things in themselves. We can only speak about the perceptions of the mind, the way the mind organizes the data, and, and the way the mind perceives the world. But it's really important to understand that from the Bible to the Enlightenment for 1800 years, theologians conceived of what they were doing as really actually speaking about the being of God. Now, we can't understand the being of God totally and comprehensively. We don't know everything about it. We can't define God. We can't put God in a box and, and completely comprehend him. But what we do say about God, we believe is true about God's being. Um, I remember that um, a friend telling me about being in John Webster's class at uh, Aberdeen um, around 2010, and um, John presented a lecture on this point, talking about how theology is about the being of God, not just models about God. And, um, and how he, he was describing the response of the seminar to this lecture. And the response was, how, how can you say th things like that? You know, this is, this is, it was so novel and so um, different 
what they were hearing from him at that point was so different that they were having trouble processing it because they were modern. They were post-Kantian. They were shaped by the, the idea that we can't actually make direct statements about the being of God. And, uh, and they, would, they were asking John, so how can you say these things directly about God as if you had some kind of way of seeing into the very being of God? And John says, well, the psalmists do it all the time. The Lord is good. And um, it just shows you that the two mindsets are very, very incompatible, very, very hard to for it's very hard for modern people to get their minds around the, around what it is that theology is really doing. And what I'm saying to you is that what theology is really doing is speaking about God. And of course, this would be totally impossible if it weren't for revelation. I mean, we might be able to say a very few vague things about God on the basis of human reason. We could know that he exists. We could know that he's the first cause, that he's metaphysically absolute. And then we very quickly run out of things to say. We could never know that he's holy and just. We could never know that he's loving and personal. We could never know that he that he cares about his creation in the way that Bible presents him as doing. We, there's so many things we couldn't know, uh, even if we did know a few things. Um, and of course, it's because we have the revelation of scripture that we're able to say all these things about God and be, and be sure that they're true. Well, um, I think we'll stop there and come back after lunch and, uh, go and run through these theses again. And um, I will then say a few words about why Biblicism is inadequate and what Biblicism is, what I mean by it. And then um, um, I'll distinguish between being Biblicist and being biblical uh, as two different things. And um, then we'll open it up for questions. So if you have questions, uh, I don't mind being interrupted with a question, but if you want to save your questions up at the end, feel free to do that as well. So we'll um, we'll we'll take some some time before the end of the day to do that. Hey, we're back. Um, so <clears throat> I'm going to spend the next uh, hour going through the 25 theses, and um, then I'll uh, then we'll have a break, and I'll take say a few things about biblicism and take questions uh, in the last hour. So, <clears throat> so let's uh, buckle up and see how fast we can go through here. Stop me if you have questions. Um, and uh, I think the, the goal here is not to deal with any of these issues in depth, but to have an overview of what uh, Trinitarian classical theism uh, is about. And so Trinitarian classical theism is uh, classical theism as modified by um, Christian revelation, Christian theology. It's the classical orthodox understanding of God, which uh, has been normative in the church uh, and its creeds and confessions throughout history. Okay, theology can be divided into two parts, that which is taught explicitly in scripture and that which may be deduced from what is taught explicitly in scripture. Now, I'll say more about this uh, at the end because uh, this directly relates to Biblicism. Biblicism says that theology is only number one, not number two. So uh, if you take uh, a 
the best-selling systematic theology textbook in the past 30 years has been Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. And uh, this, this book has sold over 750,000 copies. Uh, it's widely used in churches, colleges, seminaries. If you read the introduction to that book, Grudem explicitly sets out a biblicist perspective. He says that, um, that the way you do theology is you, you do exegesis and you, um, uh, you take a topic and then you, you, look, you, you basically use a concordance to look up all the verses in the Bible that deal with that topic. And then you make a, a summary of what the Bible, all these verses say about the topic. And that is your theology. That is your doctrine. And so that means that anything not found explicitly in scripture could not be considered part of um, what we are obligated to believe. Um, now, that might sound all very nice and, uh, and normal and uh, acceptable until you remember that there are certain things that are not explicitly stated in scripture, which we consider to be foundational to the faith. The word Trinity, for example, famously does not occur in Scripture. Um, the, uh, the idea of creation ex nihilo is hotly debated whether it is explicitly stated or implied. I believe that at the minimum it can be deduced from what Scripture says. But is that good enough to make it a doctrine of the faith? Um, biblicism would say no, and um, traditionally theology would say yes. So, for example, the Westminster Confession of Faith says that we are to believe that which is expressly taught in Scripture and that which can be deduced from what, can, what, is, what can be deduced by good and necessary consequence from what is taught in Scripture. Um, well, which is it? This is a fundamental issue. And uh, historically, theology, Orthodox theology, has said that Theology consists of both what is explicitly stated and what can be deduced from that. Now, deduced is a very strong word. It, something that is deduced from it is not just anything that is consistent with it. Uh, it has to be deduced by logic from what is stated in Scripture. But um, things like the homoousios, the creation ex nihilo, the trinity, um, these are doctrines which are uh, explicitly or are deduced from that which is explicitly said in Scripture. The problem with denying the homoousios is that you end up denying what Scripture teaches. And, but there's a process by which that happens. So, um, yeah, so th this, is a, this is a very important thesis, and we will come back to it. Number four. Christian theology consists of exegesis, doctrines, and metaphysical implications of doctrines, which form the context for further exegesis. So what I'm saying is that um, Christian theology never leaves exegesis behind. It's not just a straight linear process by which we start with exegesis, and then we finish that, and we, we continue on with doctrines. It's not like once you've got a systematic theology, you no longer need to do biblical exegesis anymore. And it's not that a systematic theology is superior to the Bible. Um, the process is continuous. So in the book, I talk about 
the concept of second exegesis. So here's what I mean by that. You start out by doing exegesis of a particular passage. You can't study the whole Bible at once. You have to study a chapter, a verse, a passage. So you, you study many passages and you accumulate exegetical results. To, to do exegesis is to say in other words what the passage means. That's what I think interpretation means. To put in your own words what is being said in a given passage. That's what, that's what sermons do. That's what exegesis is about. Okay, so you do exegesis, you accumulate exegetical results. Gradually, these results are coalesce into doctrines. So you, you study Genesis 1 and Psalm 35 and John 1 and Hebrews 12 and many other passages, Colossians 1, uh, that deal with creation. And then you come up with a doctrine of creation. As you continue to study more of the Bible, you refine this doctrine. The doctrine is a summary of exegetical results. Then you deduce from that doctrine what must be true if that doctrine is true. And here's where you get into metaphysics. So, for example, if the doctrine of creation ex nihilo is true, then the creature-creator distinction must be true. So then you, you get into issues of uh, the, the so-called metaphysical attributes, immutability, eternity, uh, aseity, and so on. So once you have some metaphysical principles in, in deduced from your doctrines, then you can evaluate your own set of metaphysical uh, presuppositions. And, and so when you read a biblical text, are you reading that biblical text with a metaphysical framework that is compatible with the doctrines of scripture or not? So the second exegesis goes back to rereading the texts again, this time asking yourself, did I read this text the first time with the correct metaphysical framework? And if I did not, did I get the meaning wrong? Did I miss something? Is there more meaning in this text than I thought? Or is there less than I thought? Or did I get the right, the right interpretation? And so second exegesis is a reconsideration of previous exegesis from within the, your, your new biblically informed metaphysical framework. And this doesn't just happen once, but it's, a, it's like a spiral, it's an ongoing process. As you do more exegesis, you refine your metaphysical framework. As your metaphysical framework becomes more refined, it allows you to do more exegesis. And I would argue that um, missing from most evangelical accounts of exegesis is the idea of contemplation. Uh, many books on how to interpret the Bible don't really emphasize contemplation. I called my book Contemplating God with the Great Tradition because I believe that we need to contemplate the scriptures. We can read certain biblical texts on multiple levels. We can, we can read a text, get something true out of it, and then later come back to that text and see even a deeper meaning in the text than we saw before. Not one that contradicts the first meaning, but goes deeper. The Bible, as the revelation of God, is almost inexhaustible in its depth. This is something that I don't think we 
sufficiently appreciate is the depth of scripture. And contemplating scripture on the basis of the metaphysical framework informed by biblical doctrine allows us to see deeper truth in scripture than we otherwise would see. For one thing, it allows us to see Christ in the Old Testament a lot better. Um, the, the, the ultimate context for interpreting any text is the canon of scripture as a whole. And when we, when we contemplate scripture in the light of scripture's own teaching, we see depths of meaning that we would otherwise miss. So it's very important that this process of exegesis doctrine, metaphysical implications of doctrine back to exegesis, that this continuous spiral go on and on forever. There's no end to it. Um, there is no, there's no, no point at which you have done enough exegesis and you no longer need to do anymore. Um, I believe that, that the Bible is something that should form the, should be the preoccupation of theologians. And I think also that this is um, a way in which the theological curriculum needs to be reformed. The fourfold division of theology into uh, biblical exegesis, uh, historical theology, systematic theology, and practical theology is a modern innovation. You do not see this, uh, you, you know, if, if you ask, if you take a, a, a pre-modern theologian, take Calvin, or take uh, Aquinas, or take Augustine. And if you ask, was that person primarily a biblical scholar or a systematic theologian, or a practical theologian, or a historical theologian? The answer is yes, always yes. They were all, all of those things. Um, you, so, so you've got Augustine's sermons, his writings on practical theology, you've got his philosophical theology, you've got his exegesis, you've got his, his treatment of his predecessors. It's all part of theology. It's all one thing. In the modern academy, we have divided it up in such a way that there are people who function as biblical scholars who just don't take any position on theological matters. They say that's somebody else's department. This is not adequate. And preachers know it's not adequate. Because when you go to preach a text, you can't be compartmentalized. You've got to say what the text means. And that means you've got to determine which of the historical positions was right and which were wrong. It means that you've got to take exegesis into account, obviously, but it means also that you have to you have to think about that text in relation to other texts in scripture. You have to think of it systematically. Um, and you have to be aware that we all bring metaphysical presuppositions to our exegesis of the text. So preachers are aware that the compartmentalization of the academy is, is artificial and unsustainable. And so we need to reform theology so that all theologians do exegesis, all theologians do history, all theologians consider philosophy, all theologians are systematic theologians. And you might say, well, that's too hard. Well, it wasn't too hard for 1800 years. It only became too hard in the early 19th century. So um, what's wrong with modern people? Uh, I would suggest to you that the too hard is just an excuse. I think that... Um, that uh, we need to do it. 
And some of us, if it's hard, well, theology is hard. It's like saying, you know, make calculus simple. You can't. Calculus is calculus. And, and if you want to study it, you have to learn it. And it's hard and it's complicated. And there's no way to make it simpler. You, you can't make it simpler than it is. And theology is, can't be made simpler than it is. That's why pastors need to go to school. That's why pastors need to study. That's why pastors need books. It's not as simple as falling off a log. If it were easy, everybody would do it. You know, it's like making a million dollars. If it was that easy, everybody would do it. So theology is all of these things interacting together. Okay, here's a controversial one. This one says you can prove the existence of God. Nine out of 10 theologians today would deny this. Um, we have, uh, it used to be, and, and in fact, most people today do not realize that up until the Enlightenment, all pretty well all theologians agreed that the existence of God could be demonstrated by reason. Pretty well all. It wasn't, it wasn't a minority view. It was the pretty well everybody. Most people, most theologians today would say you cannot prove the existence of God by reason alone. Well, that's another way in which modern theology has really changed and departed from the tradition. Um, so I would say that um, uh, this affects the way we do, the way we preach, it affects the way we do theology. Um, do we believe that Paul is correct to say in Romans 1 that although they knew God, they didn't worship him? Is he correct in that? Um, and, and the culpability of human beings for not worshiping the creator is based on the idea that they do know God. They do know that God exists. And you take that away and you begin to open up a whole host of problems. Like, for example, I've had discussions with students in class where students will say, well, how could God send somebody who was born in a place where they never heard the gospel, they never heard anything about Christianity? How could God send somebody like that to hell? They've never had a chance to hear the truth. Well, that's related to this point. Do people know? without special revelation that God exists and they should worship him? If the answer is yes, well, then obviously he's sending them to hell for not doing what they could have done. But if, if, if the answer is no, then it seems like a big problem. It seems unfair for God to judge someone in that case. So this is a big, this is a very important issue and uh, we need to give it some consideration. Thomas Oden uh, says, to ask whether God exists is suppose a question of fact, not merely of theory. The question is quite simply, is this, is this so? To establish a fact is to show the state of things as they are. Fact is distinguished from fancy. In classic Christianity, the existence of God is not merely a theory or a hypothesis, but a necessary axiom of rational minds. Well, we've really lost that in modern theology and we need to recapture it. Thesis six, God is the first cause of all that exists, but is not himself caused since existence is part of his own essence. You know, Richard Dawkins in the, the, the book, The God Delusion, 
asks the question, if God caused everything, if God created the world, who created God? What caused God? Um, and he thinks that he's he's got a real gotcha there. He thinks he's, he's really, uh, you know, caught everybody out as if that was, um, you know, uh, such an obvious thing to ask that it just completely destroys Thomistic metaphysics. Well, Richard Dawkins doesn't even understand the meaning of the word God. That's what Thomas Aquinas would say. Thomas would say that the definition of God is that God is the first cause of everything. He is the uncaused caused cause. He is the unactualized actualizer. And that's what it means. That's what we mean by the word God. When we say God, we don't mean just another step in the causal chain. We mean that on which the causal chain depends and wouldn't exist if it didn't exist. The God's existence, Thomas says, is self-evident in itself, but not necessarily self-evident to us. Why? Because people are stupid. I mean, it's, it's, it's not necessarily evident to person X that God exists, but if person X knows the true definition of what the word God means, and thinks about it logically, person X is bound to admit that God exists. But as it happens, there are plenty of atheists running around like Richard Dawkins who claim that God does not exist. So sure, there are people who don't know in the sense that they are not aware of the existence of God. But Thomas is trying to make the point that, that the fact that such people exist does not mean that God's existence can't be proven, it means that those people don't want to prove it. It's the same point Paul is making in Romans 1. It's not that these people don't know there's a creator, it's that they don't want to worship the creator, which is a different matter. And of course, you can suppress the knowledge of God so long to such an extent that you even sort of forget that God exists. You can, put your, you can work yourself into a state where you're convinced that God doesn't exist. But even that doesn't prove that God doesn't exist. Um, number seven, God is independent of creation, aseity. While creation is dependent on God, the reverse is not true. So creation depends for its existence on God, but God does not depend on creation. That's what aseity means. God is metaphysically absolute. He is pure act. Um, every creature is a combination of actuality and potentiality. Okay, so an acorn is uh, an actual acorn, but it contains the potential to grow into an oak tree. That potential, however, must be actualized by something actual. So the sun has to shine down sunlight onto that acorn. The rain has to fall and water that acorn. Under the right conditions, uh, that acorn's potential can be actualized. But it can't be actualized by something that's merely potential. It has to be actualized by something that's actually existing. It has to be actual sunshine and actual rain, not potential rain or potential sunshine. Right? That's pretty clear, right? So the so the the potential in a thing is actualized by something else outside the thing that
that is actual. And if you if you work up the causal chain from the acorn to the to the things that actualize it, and you go all the way up, eventually, one of two things is going to happen. You either are going to say this causal chain is infinite; it has no end, or you're going to say the causal chain terminates in a first cause, which itself is actual and actualizes the next thing in the chain, but does not need to be actualized itself because it doesn't have any potentiality and it's just all pure act. And that, that is God. If you say the chain is indefinite, well, that's logically incoherent because if the chain was infinite, it wouldn't be here. Moreover, the only way you could even conceive of an infinite series of causes would be if you conceived of the cosmos as itself infinite. And if you do that, what you have done is basically you've turned, you have divinized the cosmos. You have taken an attribute of God, God is pure act, and attributed to the cosmos, which is not really, you know, you haven't really... Um, you haven't really achieved your goal, which is to eliminate the need for God. You've just renamed God. You've called God. You've said, oh, yeah, there's a God, but it's a cosmos. Well, you haven't disproven God. What you've got is a heretical notion of God, a heretical doctrine of God, a pantheistic doctrine of God instead of a theistic doctrine of God. But you cannot get away from the fact that there must be a first cause. Otherwise, nothing would exist. So... God's aseity is an essential aspect of what it means for God to be God. Now, God is eternal. This is one that's commonly misunderstood. Um, many people would, would say, many people are trying to read, especially in modern analytic philosophy, are trying to redefine eternity as everlastingness. Um, if God creates an angel, at the first moment of creation. So beginning of the world, let's say God creates an angel and let's say that that angel is immortal. It's gonna live forever. Is that angel eternal? If you said yes, then you have adopted the modern understanding of eternity as opposed to the classic understanding. In order for something to be eternal, it has to be not just everlasting from this point on, it has to have never not existed. We think about that for a moment. That means that no creature could be eternal. A creature could be immortal. A creature could be everlasting. A creature could continue to exist from now into the future. But no creature could have always been. Every creature, by definition, must be created, must have a beginning. Only God does not have a beginning. Only God is eternal. And what it means to be eternal is not to just exist as long as time exists. It means to somehow be before or outside or above time, to be transcendent, as we say. And so the eternity of God is something that is being uh, widely denied today. Um, in fact, people talk about this as um, people deny the timelessness of God. 
And of course, timeless is a bad term because the problem with timelessness is that when somebody says uh, that God is timeless, it sounds like they're saying God is not real. But actually, God is timeless in the sense of being transcendent of time, but time is not, but, but God is not, it's not that God is not real to us in time, it's that time itself does not contain God. Time is God's creature. Time and space are correlative. They, they mutually imply each other. As soon as you create matter, you've got time. Because matter is, by definition, a combination of form and, form and matter, which is potentiality and actuality, which is changing. And as soon as you have change, you have time. And so God is not in time in that sense. And yet time is his creature. Um, the best way to express it as a perfection is to think about, about God being, all times being equally present to God. God is not back there in time or in the future. He is, all times are present to him. This is why I sometimes say that God does not have foreknowledge. And people uh, think that I'm saying that God doesn't know the future. What I'm saying is much more radical than I'm saying nothing is really future to God. I'm saying God just has knowledge. God knows all things in one eternal simultaneous act. But he is not, God is not breathlessly waiting to find out what happens next in the story. God is, God knows all things at once. He is eternal. And he's immutable. Change is the movement of a thing from one state of being to another in which some unrealized potential is actualized. That's what change is. And God cannot change. And when you say God cannot change, if I said, um, you know, another professor is stuck in a rut and he just can't accept change, that would be a deficiency. He'd say to be not able to change for a creature would be a bad thing. It would be like being frozen. But for God not to be able to change is a perfection. Because for God, if he changed, he would have to have unrealized potential, but then he would have to be made up of parts, but then he wouldn't be simple and he wouldn't be perfect. For God to change would mean he would either be getting better or getting worse. And it's difficult to see which is the most blasphemous. And, you, and somebody might say, oh, well, God could change without getting better or worse. There are some ways in which you just change and it's just different. It's not better, it's not worse. That's true. There are some ways in which that is true, but that doesn't account for all change. Change is a creaturely phenomenon. It's something creatures do, um, but it's not something God does. Um, as pure act, God is simple. When we say God is simple, we don't mean simplistic. We mean God is not composed of parts. He's not comprised of some actuality and some unrealized potential. It's not like when God grows up, he's going to be even greater than he is now. That's the kind of thing that happens to creatures, but that's not God. 
divine simplicity um, is a an absolute doctrine. So when people talk about divine simplicity today, sometimes they talk about relative simplicity or partial simplicity or simplicity in one aspect of his being and not another. None of this is coherent. God is either simple or he's not. It's like saying someone is either pregnant or not. Um, it's like saying something is unique or it's not. That's one of my 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 beefs is um, the idea that people say something is relatively unique. It can't be relatively unique. If it's unique, it is unique. That means there's only one of a kind. It can't be somewhat unique or fairly unique or quite unique or relatively unique. That's all nonsense. If it's unique, then it is unique and it can't be anything else. Well, simple is like that. God is, if God is simple, he's not comprised of parts, not even just two parts, not even three parts. He's just not comprised of parts at all. The words, the, the concept of divine simplicity is, a, is one of those terms that we use to distinguish between the creature and the creator and we don't know completely exactly what it means. We just, we're denying something. We're denying that God is like a creature comprised of parts that is changing and evolving through time. Does that mean we've now defined God? No. Does that mean we comprehend God? No. We've simply said he's not a creature. He is simple. Um, and, and you might say, well, I don't fully understand understand that well that would be what we call a bug not a feature that that is uh that that's what you're not supposed to understand that it's okay don't worry about that if you don't understand simplicity it's not it's not important to understand it it's important to affirm it because if you could comprehend it um it would be it would be something you would have to be God, and um there are two, th two important things to remember in doing theology, uh, two important basic principles in doing theology. Number one, there is a God. Number two, it's not me. If you can remember those two simple rules, then theology will be a lot more uh, fun. Um, God is transcendent, which means that he is not a being within the universe, but the sovereign Lord of all that exists. And these previous attributes that we've been going through can be summed up with the word transcendent. Transcendent means to be above, to not be contained within. That's what transcendent means. And so as the simple, immutable, self-existent first cause of the universe, God is utterly distinct from creatures. As we said earlier, different in, in kind, not in degree. And no other culture outside of Israel had a concept of a transcendent God. You can look at all the Egyptian religion, all the Canaanite religion, all the Mesopotamian religion. There is no concept of real transcendence in any of it. It is unique to Israel. And I believe that's because uh, Israel received special revelation from God. Okay, analogical language. This is very important. Sometimes people talk about uh, metaphor and using metaphors for God. Um, I don't like using metaphors. M metaphorical language implies that we're not saying anything literally true, and that's that's problematic. Okay, what's analogical language? Let's take the word father. 
first of all, we need to say that when we talk about God, all the language we use for God is drawn from our experience. Like where, where else could we draw it from? You know, we, we can't draw language from uh, experience we've never had. We, 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 we as human beings have certain experiences in this world and the language that we use to, to describe God is language we take from our experience and then we compare God to that, that aspect of our experience. Now, if we use the language univocally, so we take the word father, so we know what a human father is, we call God father. If we are using the word father univocally, then everything that we mean by human father applies to God. They, they mean exactly the same. The word father means exactly the same in both cases. So if I say, I am a human father uh, and I have a son and God is father and he has a son. If we're using the word father univocally, the logical question that occurs to somebody is, well, I have a son and I also have a wife and that's how I got a son. So who's God's wife? If the word father is univocal, then everything that is true of human fatherhood must be true of divine fatherhood. So if human fathers can only become fathers with a wife, then God must have a wife. Right? Okay, well, if we, what if we go the other extreme and we say that the language is equivocal? Well, if it's equivocal, then nothing is really the same. There's no commonality between human fatherhood and divine fatherhood. To be a human father is one thing, to be God, for God to be father is an entirely different thing altogether. They have nothing in common. So it's the opposite of univocal. Univocal, they have everything in common, they're identical. Equivocal, they have nothing in common. If it's equivocal, what's the point of even speaking about God? What's the point of even calling him father? If, you, if, if it's equivocal, then to say God is father is really to say nothing. We've not really asserted anything because we have no idea what fatherhood means in the case of God. Analogical is in between those two. In, an, in analogical language, when we speak about God, we use language drawn from the human sphere to say something about God, and there is a point of analogy but the point of but there are many but there are many more ways in which the language is not identical than 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 ways in which it is identical so there is an aspect of human fatherhood that is true of god but there are many aspects of human fatherhood that are not, not true of god there is a point of analogy so we use the word father but we don't mean, in applying it to God, everything we mean when we apply it to humans. But, but there is an overlap. So um, the point of overlap in saying that God is Father is this. The difference between a man and his son, a father and son, versus just two unrelated people, one older, one younger. The difference is that a father begets a son. That means the son ha has genetic material from the father. 
the son is of the father's blood. So that makes a unique relationship between the son and the father that does not exist between the son and anyone else. When we talk about God as father and Jesus Christ as son, we're saying that there is a commonality of being there. There is a, a, a unity of being that is somewhat like a human father and human son relationship, but not exactly. We're using the human father analogy to describe something that is true about the father and the son, uh, uh, the God, the father and God, the son. We still have to reflect on it and contemplate it and flesh it out. We have to do exegesis and we have to, to specify exactly where the point of analogy is and where it isn't. Um, so analogical language is not some kind of shortcut. It's, it's sort of a long cut, but it does allow us to use human language to speak about God while respecting the creator-creature distinction. That's what analogical language does. It allows us to say something meaningful about God, something true about God, without reducing God to the human level. Now, you might say um, that, uh, um, that analogical language is, um, does not give us a complete comprehension of God, and that would be right. It doesn't but it does allow us to say something that is literally true about God. That's why it's better than metaphor. It's not merely a metaphor. It is literally true. That the father is the, that the father eternally begets the son is literally true. It's an actual true statement about the being of God. It's not just a picture that we conjure up in our minds that we somehow apply to God. God must be something like this. No, it's literally true. You see, this is the, the, the point of doing theology is to figure out a way to say that things are literally true about God. Things that we can, things that we can believe and by faith and put our, put our hope in. Like when you do theology, you're trying to define what you believe. You're trying to define what you would be willing to die for. You're not just spinning out theories that oh, it might be true, might not be true, who knows. Theology is about confessing our faith. It's about saying what we believe so deeply and so profoundly that we're willing to die for that. And so that better be true. Nobody wants to die for a a, a story. Nobody wants to die for a metaphor. We want to die for the truth. And yet we're creatures trying to speak about an infinite creator. And that's not easy. And so we know the limitations of human language. You know, we know, for example, that with a human father, we can only think of human fatherhood within the context of time. You see, there was a time when I was 20 years old when I was not a father. And then when I was about 23, I became a father. But that's not true of God. There was never a time when the father was just God and then became a father. 
if you if you believe that, well, then you're an Aryan. That's what Arius believed. And so, so we, we, we want to say that God is Father. We want to, we want to follow Scripture because Scripture calls God Father. Jesus calls the Father his Father. And we want to follow Jesus on this point. We want to believe what the Scripture teaches. But in order to do that, we've got to recognize the limitations of human language and look for the point of analogy. And Scripture, exegesis is the guide here. Exegesis guides us toward the proper true point of analogy. And so at the bottom of everything else, the debate between the Nicenes and the Arians was an exegetical debate. That, that's what it was really, what it really came down to. And so analogical language is the tool that we use to say th things about God that are true without being comprehensive. Very important. Um, next thesis. Oh, we're at the end of this lecture. Just one second. And I will bring up the other lecture. Okay, so we're on lecture three, um, continuing with thesis 13. God is omnipotent. And that doesn't mean he's just 10% more powerful than the next powerful being, it means he's omnipotent. Um, he's also omnipresent. And he is uh, omniscient, these three omnis. Remember the three omnis here, omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. These are not comparatives, but superlatives. He is not more powerful, more knowing, more present, but he is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. This means that God does not learn anything. God knows. Um, and he does not know things in the same way that creatures know things. For example, he never finds anything out for the first time. Um, God knows all things simultaneously in one perfect eternal act. And so there's no informing him of what he did not know. In scripture, when, when, it, uh, when it talks about, you know, God tested Abraham to see what his, he would do, it's speaking about God in a human way. But I don't think that it's expecting you to believe that God sitting there on the edge of his seat can't wait to find out what Abraham's decision is going to be. And then Abraham decides to believe him. And he said, yes, I knew it. I was so glad. You know, we're, we're, we're projecting human limitations unto God at that point. But how else could the scripture explain to us the significance of Abraham having faith? You know, or, or take the um, Genesis 6 when God repents that he had made man because he sees that man's wickedness is so great. What is the text trying to say to us there? It seems to me to be very clear that the text is trying to make a point. The text is trying to say, the author of Genesis is trying to say, how bad was the wickedness in the time of Noah? Well, here's how bad it was. It was as bad, it was so bad that it was as if God repented that he'd made man. That's what it's really trying to say. It's trying to convey the depth of depravity of the human race. It's trying to convey how bad things were getting and how, to, how better to do that than to put it as 
it's as if God was sorry that he'd made human beings in the first place. That's how bad we were. I don't think it literally means that God was kicking himself for making human beings, wishing he had done something different. Sorry that he made the human race, wondering how he was going to get out of this conundrum. You know, the idea that God is stuck with us, that God is, is somehow impotent to, to um, you know, he, he, he didn't foresee how bad it was going to get. And now he, and now he's sorry because once, now that he has found out the future, which he didn't know before, now he's sorry that he had made human beings. No, that, that's ridiculous. That's not compatible with the view of God in scripture as the sovereign omnipotent Lord. Now, here we kind of make a shift in the theses. Up until this point, we've been stressing how different God is from the world and how unique God is, how absolutely, totally unique he is. He's not just very different from us. He is his own class, his own genus. There is no comparative to God at all. Okay. So in a sense, we've been doing Old Testament theology. We've been stressing that God is the only, the one and only God, the first cause of the universe, totally unique. Okay, fine. But now we begin to talk about what we learn from God's actions in the economy. And we begin to, to say, and we have to say, the fact that we believe that God is the one simple, eternal, immutable, self-existent first cause of the universe does not mean that he cannot act in history to speak, judge, and save. If a mutable God who exists in time, reacting to the world, were to become incarnate, that would be no big deal. Then the incarnation would be just a revelation of what's always been the case. God interacting with the world, being affected by the world, the world effect. The whole point of the, the whole reason the incarnation is so scandalous, the reason it's so incredible is because of who God is, the God who becomes incarnate. It's the fact that God is, is, is the God of classical theism that makes the incarnation such a, a miracle, such an astonishing thing. So God is, on the one hand, holy, just, and wrathful, but also loving, merciful, and gracious. Now, we must be careful in talking about such attributes not to attribute human qualities to God. And so um, the word emotions, you know, I, I read a lot of theology today where people debate whether God has emotions. And they seem to forget that the fact that emotions, the word emotions, is a modern word that began to be used in the 19th century, and it really has a materialistic basis. It's, it's involuntary and irrational forces originating in the physical dimension of the human being. Um, emotions are caused by bodily things. So if you get scared, frightened by something, and you, you have hormones released by your body that cause your brain to to experience the, the um, emotion of fear. Well, 
God certainly doesn't have those because God doesn't have a body. God doesn't, God is not a human being like we are. So how do we, how do we think about God's love or God's wrath? Well, the classical theology did not use the word emotions, but up until the enlightenment, classical theology used the language of affections versus passions. Passions were regarded as the, as, as feelings caused by the, the human body, the human soul, uh, the lower parts of the soul, whereas affections were the movements of the higher part of the soul, the rational part of the soul. So an affection is when I consciously choose to love my wife. A passion would be lust. So classical theology would not even think of attributing passion to God. That's why the Westminster Confession of Faith and Second London Confession say God is without body parts or passions. So when they talk about God being holy, wrath, holy, just, loving, and merciful, classical theology would refer to those as affections. But even the word affections is used analogically. When God has love or wrath, it is analogous to human love or wrath, not identical. There is something about human love and wrath and mercy and so on, which is the same in God. But it is the point of analogy is very narrow. There are many things about human uh, affections which are not true of God. And we have to be very careful in not in, 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 in realizing that the language used is analogical and not overinterpret what it means for God to be loving or God to be merciful, or God to be wrathful, or God to be holy, or whatever. The immutable first cause of all things who speaks and acts is a paradox, not a contradiction. And this is called a mystery. This concept of mystery exists in theology to protect the creature-creator distinction. It is, it is marked by a paradox the difference between a paradox and a contradiction is that a, a paradox is an apparent contradiction. So there's a difference between an apparent contradiction and a real contradiction. Okay? A real contradiction is a violation of the law of, of, of non-contradiction, which says that A cannot be non-A in the same way at the same time. So something could be apparently contradictory without being actually contradictory. So this is very common in court testimony concerning traffic accidents, for example. Uh, two people can describe a traffic accident and from their own perspective, they are describing it accurately and truly. And yet they seem to conflict. But when you know more facts about the accident and the circumstances, you realize that both descriptions are partial but true. And that's the way it works in, in theology. The, the, um, 
we, we say things about God that appear to be contradictory, but they are not really contradictory. They only seem to be contradictory because we have a partial knowledge of the facts. So it's very important to keep this straight because modern people are far too, um, are far too willing to rush into contradiction and accept contradictions as inevitable. We, we should be very careful. In doing theology, we don't want to reduce everything to what is comprehensible, but neither do we want to embrace contradictions. Contradictions cannot be true. God is incomprehensible to the creature. While we can have true knowledge of God, we can never have comprehensive knowledge, which is to say we can know God without comprehending God. I think I've said enough about that. So what this means is that the God of the Bible is more than the God of the philosophers, but not less. God is more than the God of classical theism. He's also the God of incarnation and, and, uh, and, and Trinity, but he is not less. So in other words, when the New Testament presents the doctrine of the Trinity to us, it's not a negation of the Old Testament doctrine of monotheism. That, that's, a, that's very important to, to bear in mind. When the New Testament says that, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's not denying the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. If your doctrine of the Trinity contradicts the Shema, then it's not the biblical doctrine. So, that's what the fourth century struggle was all about, was, was expressing the doctrine of the Trinity, which is undoubtedly taught in the New Testament, in such a way as not to deny or contradict monotheism. And that's why it's so hard to do. And it's complicated. But something can be hard and complicated without being contradictory. Um, okay. The created order bears the imprint of the divine logos and humans are created in the image of God, which means the human mind can apprehend the order and structure in creation, which is the basis of natural theology, the natural moral law and scientific law. We've already talked about this. Um, reality is not a chaotic mess, but a structured orderly creation. The transcendent creator of the universe has revealed himself to Israel and climactically in Jesus Christ, which is the first mystery of God. There are three great mysteries of God. The first is that the transcendent creator has revealed himself in history to Israel and in Christ. The second is the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is three persons or hypostases, but one being Usia. This is the second mystery. You remember all this talk about contradiction, paradox, and mystery has been setting up these three uh, propositions. And then the third mystery is that the second person of the Trinity has assumed a human nature into hypostatic union with himself in the incarnation. This is the third mystery of God. So God's self-revelation in history, the Trinity, and the incarnation are the three great mysteries of God. These are the three points at which our ability to comprehend breaks down. But notice, even in the incarnation, God's nature does not change.
And thesis number 25, the purpose of theology is neither to dissolve nor to explain the mysteries of the faith. Rather, the purpose of theology is to define what the church believes, teaches, and confesses about these mysteries in such a way as to enable contemplation and worship of God while avoiding heresy. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Do theology. So that's Trinitarian classical theology. We're going to take a break now. And uh, when I come back, I'm going to say just a few, a few things about biblicism. And this is mainly review now because I've said most of what, is, what I have to say about biblicism. But I'm just going to sort of sum it up a little bit in a few minutes. And then we'll be ready for um, some discussion and questions and answers. And I hope you have some things to, uh, to ask about um, that you've made note of as we've gone along. So let's, it's 10 o'clock, let's just take a five minute break or 10 minute break, I guess at this point, or 10 o'clock my time, it's, uh, it's two o'clock your time. And we'll, we'll take a, a, a 10 minute break and be back at, at uh, 2.10 and we'll take 50 minutes for our final session. Okay, we'll see you in a few minutes. Well, it's time to get back to work. Um, I will be interested to, um, to know uh, from you in the discussion time, you might be thinking about this, um, if biblicism describes sort of the theology or the theological approach to scripture that you have been um, exposed to growing up on, and in your church, like, do you, would you say that this description of biblicism that I'm giving here is common in your circles, in your, in your church, in your denominational uh, environment? Or would you say that your church is not biblicist in this sense at all? I would be interested in knowing uh, what, you, uh, what you would say to that. Um, okay, what's wrong with biblicism? Well, first of all, uh, to be biblicist is something different than being biblical. I think being biblical is a good idea. We should all be biblical. But being biblicist is different. So there are two kinds of biblicism. There's a, a conservative kind and a liberal kind, but both are modern. They're liberal, liberal modernity and conservative modernity. They both focus on the human author's intent as the sole criteria for determining the meaning of the text and thus fail to take into account the intention of the divine author. And I think both have an inadequate definition of inspiration. Now, one, uh, the liberal view, which has been creeping into evangelicalism a little bit over the last uh, few decades, is um, the idea of a loose inspiration of ideas. So the words are not inspired, but the general ideas are. Um, that's very common in liberal Christianity, and it's becoming increasingly common in liberal evangelical Christianity. The other more conservative view of inspiration is inerrancy, the idea that the human author is preserved from error. Well, that's very good as far as it goes, but it's not really sufficient because the human author can be preserved from error, but yet the 
the the idea of inspiration involves the divine authorial intention in the text being deeper than even the human author could understand at the time, which is more than just being preserved from error. So it's important to understand revelation and inspiration as um, involving God inspiring the text, not just God inspiring the writer. See, Paul says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And, um, you know, uh, not every piece of writing by an apostle was considered sacred scripture. In fact, uh, if you read 2 Corinthians, you find out that there's another letter to the Corinthians that, we, that has been lost. We don't even know. We, we don't have that letter, uh, the cheerful letter. And um, what we have preserved by providence, by the Holy Spirit, is that which is scripture, inspired scripture. So inspiration really needs to be defined with regard to the, uh, to the intention of the, of the author, the divine author, not just the human author. Now, biblicism could be contrasted with creedal orthodoxy, or it could be contrasted with confessionalism. As I said earlier, biblicism does not allow for the deduction of truth from biblical teaching. It says we're not obligated to believe anything not explicitly taught in Scripture. And the word, keyword there is explicitly. Um, if you go on the internet and um, uh, if you look up biblical Unitarianism, you will come to a website which claims to be biblicist. It claims to be um, only wanting to believe what the scripture teaches. And it is defending Unitarianism. Because it's claiming that the Bible does not teach that the Son is, is divine in the same sense that God is divine, the Father. And, and biblical Unitarians are, are defending the oneness of God and denying the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, it's important to understand that the Arians of the 4th century, the Socinians of the 16th century, and modern Unitarians all are Biblicists. And they all claim to be teaching only what the Bible teaches. And, and what they're actually doing is they are, they are using the Bible itself to deny the implications of biblical texts. What they're really doing is introducing contradictions into theology, but they don't see it that way. And um, what, what I think is, is what often happens in, in biblicism is that there's an uncritical adoption of the currently fashionable metaphysical framework of the surrounding culture that becomes the basis for interpretation. And so we read common sense into the Bible and we read our own culture's ideas into the Bible without realizing what we're doing. So I think it's very important to become um, self-critical and self-conscious of what we're doing when we're doing theology and to uh, avoid um, what I would call a naive kind of biblicism. 
because it leads to heresy. Some people read 2 Corinthians, or uh, sorry, Colossians 2, 8 and 9 in a way that I think is unwarranted. Um, we read there that uh, Paul warns the Colossians, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Now, how should we read that statement? Should we take that to mean that Paul is warning the Colossian believers to stay away from reading philosophy? Um, well, there are several problems with interpreting it that way. One, way. one problem is that Paul seems to have done quite a bit of reading in philosophy and, uh, and Greek poetry himself, as you can see from his uh, speech in Athens in Acts 18, where he quotes some Greek poets. Another problem is, does he mean all philosophy or philosophy of the kind he goes on to describe as empty deceit according to human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ? It seems to me that what Paul is saying is that we need to let our metaphysical presuppositions be shaped by our Christology. He's not saying we should, we should, um, not study philosophy at all. So the question is, does he mean that we should reform philosophy according to biblical doctrine, or does he mean we should just, you know, ignore philosophy? The problem is that you may not be interested in metaphysics, but metaphysics is interested in you. The, the problem is that the, the, the world around you um, is interested in shaping you into its mold. And that's why Paul says in Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And so I think that what Paul means in Colossians 2 is be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Don't let your metaphysics be shaped by human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world. By the way, what are the elemental spirits of the world? Um, I think in Paul's understanding of the world, um, he, is, he, he, is, he is well aware that there are fallen spiritual entities. You can call them demons, you can call them uh, false gods, you can call them whatever you want, but they are real and they are interested in leading us astray. And so Paul does not think that the world, you know, is a particularly safe neighborhood. He thinks that there are bad people out there. You know, we teach our children, don't get in cars with strangers. Why? Because there are bad people out there who want to hurt you. Paul does not, does not encourage believers to just assume that whatever everybody believes is probably true, but rather to be very suspicious of the culture around them and to evaluate everything and test it according to the word of God. So become conscious of what you are assuming uh, to be the case metaphysically. Do you believe that a human being is essentially a disembodied self apart from the body? Or do you believe that a human being is an ensouled body? Well, which is it? And, and if you believe that the 
human being, uh, the real self is just a disembodied self. Did you get that from the Bible or did you get that from Cartesian philosophy? See, those are the kinds of questions we need to ask ourselves because we need to make sure that we're not just being naive about the way we uh, come to the things we believe. We need to, we, things that seem like common sense are the most dangerous. Because, you know, this is, if the devil comes along and says, you know, um, what you should do is you should, um, you should, you should leave your wife and children and rob a bank and take off for Mexico. You probably won't fall for that one because you know that's really ridiculous. That's really crazy. That's far out. Why would you ever do that? But he will come to you with a temptation that's a lot more subtle and a lot more plausible. And when it comes to these issues of, of metaphysics, we need to be most, most cautious about what seems most innocuous. About that for an axiom. Most, be most cautious about what seems most innocuous. If it seems like common sense, beware. Give it a second thought. Try it out. Don't just accept it and don't just, uh, don't just swallow it hook, line, and sinker. The, the obviously wrong things you're probably going to avoid. It's the things that seem clearly, seem obviously true that can trip you up. Christian metaphysics can be deduced from Christian doctrines. So we begin with exegesis, but we don't end with exegesis. We study the whole Bible because the whole Bible is the crucial context for interpreting. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. Um, I'm going to uh, talk about Isaiah tomorrow. I'm going to argue that, that the doctrine of God that is the, what I've described today is actually comes from, from the Bible and Isaiah 40 to 48 in particular. And the reason I'm going to do that is because there are so many people saying, well, it comes from Greek philosophy. And I'm going to say, well, no, it really comes from Isaiah. And last time I checked, Isaiah was not a Greek philosopher. He's a Hebrew prophet. And so we're going to talk about historical critical interpretation, and we're going to talk about the critical issue of context. There are, there are, there are more, there's more than one context for interpreting a passage. But what's the critical context? What's the most important context? Is it the historical background or is it the canon? So we'll talk about that tomorrow. Um, as we assemble a Christian metaphysics out of these deductions from Christian doctrines, we work out a logically coherent metaphysical framework. And not very many of us have spent much time doing this. Not very many of us re read books on metaphysics. Not very many of us Study metaphysics. You don't have to study any metaphysics in school, high school. You don't have to study it in college. And uh, so most people just pick up their metaphysics on the street, so to speak. Um, just like you shouldn't allow your children to get their sex education from the, uh, the locker room at school, you should be uh, concerned that people get their metaphysics from scripture and Christian tradition rather than just from the world. Um, we've already talked about exegesis, doctrine, metaphysics, the three-legged stool, and evangelicals today are very strong on exegesis, but weak on doctrine and extremely weak on metaphysics. 
And this is this is part of the imbalance that we face in in our uh, our branch of Christendom. So I've already mentioned gender theory as an example, transgenderism. Um, if transgenderism makes sense in the context of your metaphysics, you probably need to revisit your metaphysics. Um, and, and, and if you have people in your church who don't see why homosexuality is a problem, then you probably have a metaphysical crisis on your hands. You probably have people who are getting their metaphysics from the world and that's why homosexuality makes sense because they're looking at it with a worldly metaphysics. And so if you just concentrate on saying homosexuality is bad, it's evil, it's wrong, it's terrible, it's awful. Well, you may be right, but you're not gonna, you're not gonna change their mind probably because, because just hammering away at how sinful it is seems arbitrary to them. It's like, they think, well, why would that be a rule? Like, why would God care? Uh, you know, isn't all love just as good as any other love? Like, why would God care who you love? Doesn't he want you to be happy? And of course, people are just, it's not going to make sense to them, given the metaphysics that they've imbued from the world. So you've got to show them that the whole issue of homosexuality, a whole issue of gender theory in general is not a series of arbitrary rules imposed by God for reasons best known to himself. But rather, these are rules that have been developed that grow out of the nature of reality. God has created us in a certain way to flourish in a certain way. And the rules are designed to keep us from wandering off the path to fulfillment. The rules are for our own good. They are to help us to get to the place where we can be all that we can be as human beings. Well, that's a very different approach than simply saying it's, it's sinful, it's bad, repent. Um, I, I think that, that there's a harmony between the way God created man as male and female and the Christian sexual ethic. But we've lost that sense of there being a harmony there because our doctrine of creation has been drastically weakened by, by modern uh, evolutionary teaching and our idea of metaphysics is almost non-existent and so we we are we're unable to explain adequately why why God says certain things in scripture and we and we're unable to explain how hurling ourselves against the rock of reality and breaking ourselves on that rock is not going to lead to real long-lasting fulfillment. So the problem with biblicism is that it's only doing a part of theology instead of doing all of theology. That's basically the, the issue. Um, as evangelicals, as conservative Christians, confessional Protestants, living in a very secularized society that is very anti-Christian in many ways, it's easy to sort of stop talking about science, stop talking about metaphysics, stop talking about ethics, and just retreat into the Bible, to study nothing but the Bible, and to preach nothing but the Bible, but to preach the Bible in such a way that it doesn't really impinge on the rest of life. 
That's the temptation. Um, that's a recipe for a, a domesticated church that does not really challenge the culture. And that kind of church will not convert people. It will encourage accommodation. So um, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say in this week of lectures is that when you have a truly orthodox doctrine of God, that doctrine will be uh, something that has, has ramifications for every area of life and it will, be, it will lead to the preaching, to the kind of preaching that calls people to genuine convert, conversion and transformation and sanctification and it will create a people which is a distinct people, um, different from the world around them, and uh, a community where, where you can actually see the gospel at work. But in order to, to have that kind of preaching, the first thing we need is the right doctrine of God. So I'm going to end there and just uh, open it up for questions, and I hope that... Uh, uh, I'd like to know what you think of biblicism. Are you do you do you see this as a um, as a problem in your circles? Do you see it as or are you unconvinced by it? You know, you, you think I'm I'm wrong about biblicism. I'd be glad to hear what you're thinking um, in terms of uh, you know, is it something that well, it would be it's a bad thing, but I've never seen it personally. Is that what you think, or do you think um, it's uh, it's pervasive? It's everywhere I am. Or do you think it's something that, you know, some people fall into and some people don't? You know, what what's your what's your take on on uh, on the whole thing? Uh, how do you how do you? I've defined the problem that we're going to address in the rest of the week, but I'm wondering if you see the problem the way I do. Well, I think there's quite a big movement in the UK that would look at Bible study as a bit like you look at a textbook. So you're very interested in what the human author is saying, um, and less you give less consideration to what the divine author might be saying alongside that. So it doesn't flow out of the human author per se. Um, it's not legitimate in, in certain people's lives. Second, I'm I'm having a hard time hearing you. The others on Zoom, are you having a hard time hearing as well? Mm -hmm. It's kind of echoey. Um, I don't know if there's a way to fix that. Is there, if, if there are a microphone, if you could go closer to the microphone, I wonder if that would help. In the meantime, um, could I ask you, or could I just comment on that? I, it was interesting you mentioning Wayne Grudem uh, as, were you saying he he is a biblicist? Uh, yes, yes, yeah. I was. Yeah, he he is. Um, he's very explicit about his methodology in the. Uh, mm. uh, and one of one of the things that uh, you see, um, like one of the things you see as a consequence is the um, the um, he's very ambiguous about the creeds. On the one hand, he'll say, "Oh yes, I believe the Nicene Creed." On the other hand, he'll say. But the Nicene Creed is not as authoritative as Scripture, and I, I, that's a very that's a, a sign of biblicism is when people want to say the Nicene Creed is not as authoritative as, as Scripture, 
Like if you think that it's simply saying what scripture means, why would you bother saying that? Right? Like what, why, why create this distance between it if you think it's the right interpretation of scripture? You know, if, if somebody said, uh, if you took any doctrine that, if you took a normal, like a doctrine that somebody professes to believe, if somebody's a convinced Calvinist, for example, and they believe that the doctrine of predestination is true, it's biblical, it's what the Bible teaches, you don't say, well, but the Bible is more authoritative than the doctrine of predestination. Like, as soon as you say that, you're sort of implying that there's a distance between them. There's some, some way in which you, you think it's not quite exactly what the Bible teaches. And that, that, um, that, that's often, often the case. Um, but anyway, yes, the primary uh, reason Jason Biblicist is because he defines systematic theology as the concordance approach. You, you take everything the Bible says about a doctrine, you sum it all up, and that's that's theology. There's no more steps after that. Okay. But but that doesn't, so it doesn't, being a biblicist therefore doesn't, doesn't inevitably mean you would deny the Trinity. No. But uh, out down that road, or is that what you're saying, or how do you? Well, you see, the, the biblicism is a comment about methodology. Hmm. And uh, you can have a methodology that is not adequate but still come to right conclusions on many topics and so on most of the theological topics that Grudem treats uh, I don't have any problem with with his uh, conclusions I think he's right uh, he's teaching he gets the right answer on many at many many points but I was comment about the Trinity with more in the light of history there mm -hmm. has been um like, like, like the whole idea of biblicism is people who are biblicists think that they're more, they're more faithful to the Bible than everybody else. And so my point about the Trinity was to say, well, if biblicism can lead you to a Socinian or an Arian doctrine of the Trinity, it can't be all that great. You know, it, it's got to be, that's a big problem if, if it does that. So, so you shouldn't trust the methodology to be uh, necessarily going to give you better theology than everybody else. You need to. I'm. I'm. I'm casting doubt on the sufficiency of that methodology by by using that example. But I don't mean that every person who's a biblicist ends up denying the Trinity. Sometimes they're inconsistent. I mean, I. I mean, I think sometimes that um, that people have a bad method, but they come to a right conclusion. And uh, okay, I mean, we're, we're great that they came to the right conclusion, but that doesn't make the method right necessarily. Um, and Grudem also does have some problems with the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, this whole eternal functional subordination thing uh, is, you know, and up until just recently, when he, it's only been in the last five years that he has accepted the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son. And so, uh, so there were some doc, some problems in his doctrine of the Trinity, uh, which I think have not been totally. The eternal generation problem has, he has accepted that. But um, actually, I just wrote a, re a 6,000 word review of his systematic theology second edition for Credo magazine. And I argue there that, um, that the problem with eternal functional subordination is still there. And it's a problem that has to do with understanding 
the eternal father and son as having different wills that have to come into alignment, the son submitting to the father. Um, and and so I'm 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 suggesting that his so he, he does have some problems in his doctrine of the Trinity, after all. Um, he doesn't deny the Trinity completely, but he does have some 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 real problems. Thank you. Yeah. It just makes me I mean when you say when you talk about the creeds and scripture uh you know could you talk more about that because some something in i appreciate you putting it in the negative but uh it also doesn't it doesn't sound right to me to say the creeds are as authoritative as scripture because they're not inspired in the same way are they or i mean well uh, I would go even further. I would say that when you preach a sermon and you declare the, the gospel of Jesus Christ in purity, in conformity with the scriptures, that that preaching is authoritative. In fact, that's how I understand the, the Peter and the keys, that the, uh, the whole idea that when the church declares the gospel and when a person is listening to that, that person is listening to the voice of God speaking directly to them. That person can't just walk out and say, well, that was Preacher Joe's opinion. No, that's, that's God talking to you. Just like when Isaiah stands up and declares something to the people, he gets an oracle from God and he stands up and says to the people, you know, do such and such. He's not just giving his, his personal opinion. That's God speaking to the people through the prophet. God can speak through the prophet. So God can speak through the prophet. God can speak through the preacher and God can speak through the creed. It all depends on whether the preacher is preaching the truth and whether the prophet is declaring not a false prophet, right? Because there were prophets that stood up and told Israel, don't worry, uh, idolatry in the temple is not going to get you in trouble. Don't worry about it at all. There were prophets that said that, but that was not true. That was not a true word from the Lord. But when a prophet stood up and gave a true word from the Lord, that's God speaking to the people. Same thing in scripture, same thing in the creed, same thing in the, in the sermon. It all depends on whether it's true. It's that, like, like there, was, there was true gospel being preached in the early church before Paul wrote his first letter, before there was any New Testament. Um, and, and so the... So the issue for me is not, is the creed somehow have some status that puts it above scripture? The issue is, does the creed faithfully teach scripture? Because for every true creed, there's a dozen false ones. You know, for every, for every ecumenical creed that's been widely accepted through the church, like Nicaea 1 and Niceno-Constantinopolitan and the Chalcedonian definition and the Athanasian creed, for every one of those, there's 50 other creeds that we we just treat as as non-authoritative because they don't teach the true doctrine of the Trinity or the nature of two natures of Christ or whatever. And and so just just the fact that it's a creed doesn't do anything. Just the fact that it's a sermon doesn't do anything. Even the fact that it's a prophetic oracle doesn't do anything. All depends on whether it's a true word from God, whether it's the truth of Scripture expressed in another way. So that's that's where you get into this whole deduction from from scriptural truths business. Did the fathers have any business putting homo in the creed, even though it wasn't in the Bible? 
Well, they did if it expresses the meaning of the Bible. But if it doesn't, well, then no. So, so the debate between the Arians and the, we should never, we should never allow the debate to be framed as, well, you got one group of Christians over here who just depend on the Bible. And then you got this other group of Christians over here who put the creed above the Bible. That's the way the Arians, that's how they wanted to, to frame the debate. But the pro-Nicenes wanted to frame the debate this way. They wanted to say, does the Nicene Creed teach the true meaning of scripture or not? That's the issue. And if it does, then it's as authoritative as scripture. If it doesn't, then it's not authoritative at all. It should be rejected. Have we solved the problem in the classroom of the, the echo? Um, does anybody, any of you have any techie? techie uh, trying to speak, but I was at the back of the classroom, which might've been the problem. Is this any better? Yeah, come a little closer. I, I I'm think... right by the microphone now, so this is as close as I get. Okay, good. Um, so uh, just coming back to the, you were asking about whether we see sort of biblicism in the UK. Um, and I was trying to say that I think quite often you, you see it in certain quarters that you have a very big emphasis on what the human in, author intent um, is. So it's almost like looking at the Bible passage as though it's um, it's like a textbook and you just got to work out what did Matthew have in his mind or whatever it might be. Um, and it seems to me that's, that's an insufficient approach, um, especially when you look at how, say, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. Um, but I was going to ask, how do you sort of regulate um, and interpret appropriately the divine authorial intent um, without just making a text say anything, which you, you could do if you completely um, took, took rails off, as it were? Are there helpful ways of which to think about, about that approach? Yeah, that's a very common uh, way of putting the problem that, um, that a lot of people are convinced and have heard that um, human authorial intent is the only possible way to prevent uh, hermeneutical chaos. Um, I, have, I have books, uh, I have a whole row of books here on hermeneutics, and I have many books that will say exactly that. They will say that if you don't make the, if you don't limit the meaning of the text to the human authorial intention, well, then you can make the text say mean anything you want. And they claim that that's what the fathers did all the time. Um, there are other ways to, to, uh, to keep the interpretation from going astray. There are many things to be said here, um, but just to summarize briefly, um, Athanasius, talked about the scopos of scripture. And by that he meant the overall, um, the overall line of thinking present in the scripture as a whole on a topic. And so we would, we would today do what the discipline we call biblical theology. And in biblical theology, we would treat the theme like kingdom or temple or atonement all the way through the Bible from one end to the other. And when you do that, you get an overall sense of what the Bible is about. And once you have done that, 
any individual text has to be not contradicting that overall scopos. Now, some people might find that still a bit too loose because what if you had two interpreters who both propose an interpretation of a text and they're not the same interpretation, but both interpretations are compatible with the overall teaching of scripture. Augustine would say, why would that be a problem? Um, traditionally, up until the Enlightenment, uh, most Christians would say a text is capable of having more than one meaning. Why is that a problem? It's only a problem if the meanings conflict. But, but a text can mean more than one thing at a time. And we shouldn't be afraid of that or worried about that. Like a text can have a moral meaning and it can have a doctrinal meaning. It can have an eschatological meaning. And that, that's not a problem. Question. But, but there are a whole lot of things that the text cannot mean that are still taught in, in other parts of the Bible. So they, 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 can, they can teach... Um, Two, two people can, can come to the same text and teach something that is true and that is within the scope of, of, of uh, the whole Bible, but one can, can one of them be wrong? That's, that's, I guess, my question. Well, you know, I think, I think it's, um, I think it, it is important to, um, to speak about the specific meaning of a text without simply conflating all the texts. It doesn't, just because, um, just because a certain text in a certain part of the Bible is compatible, its meaning is compatible with the rest of the Bible, doesn't mean that every text says everything that every other text says. So in that sense, we shouldn't read meaning into the text that isn't there um, in, in the sense of, of claiming that every text means exactly what every other text means. But at the same time, we've got to be careful not to imply that the specific meaning of one text is in contradiction to another. So let me, let me take an example, like Isaiah 53. Does Isaiah 53 teach atonement? Well, I would say it does. I think Isaiah 53 is about Jesus. I think it's about the, it's a prophecy of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. A lot of people would disagree with that. Uh, historical critics would say it doesn't. I would say it does. And I would say that the, the, the concept of substitution is there in Isaiah 53. But does that mean that Isaiah 53 spells out everything that Paul spells out in Romans and Galatians about atonement? No, I don't think so. Are there, does the New Testament say more than Isaiah 53 says about the meaning of the death of Christ? Yes, definitely it says more. But the more is an expansion of the same kernel of truth. It's not contradicting Isaiah in any way. So I think that's the balance we need to find. We need to, uh, What I find in, in, in liberal critics are, too, uh, are much too quick to posit 
um, differences in theology. You know, I've got one book that, for instance, it talks about theologies in Isaiah, plural. You know, if I write a book on the theology of Isaiah, it's going to be on the theology of Isaiah. It's not going to be theologies as if they had conflicting theologies uh, uh, interacting with each other. Uh, so I think that the, the, the balance is to, to, to identify what the specific text contributes to the overall teaching on atonement without conflating it with every other text, but to also understand that because all these texts are inspired by the same divine author, they fit together and they don't contradict. What, what is, because there are, we can, we can devise a set of rules to try to grasp the, the authorial intent, the intent of the human author, but, uh, and, how does that fit into then finding out the the divine intent as as you as i think you put it um some, well did how do you find if the question is how do we discover the divine intent in the text i think one of the one of the ways there are a couple of ways that happens one is by contemplating the depth meaning of the text um, seeing depth there that perhaps we didn't see at the first reading. That's one way. Another way is by taking the text and setting it in the context of the, of the canon as a whole and seeing the divine intention as revealed in the whole and not simply in the parts. So you, you can't take the human meaning of Isaiah or Paul and see a text in Isaiah or Paul or Genesis as reflecting the whole meaning of that topic in scripture as a whole. But that's where divine authorial intent allows you to do that because you assume it's the same divine author inspiring all the different texts. And so each text contributes to an overall understanding of the divine author's intention. And if you don't have a single divine author, you're not gonna have a single theology coming out of the Bible. If you reduce everything to human author only, then there's no possible way that you're going to have a unified theology um, with all these different authors coming from different cultural contexts in different centuries. Um, it, you know, that would be, that would be uh, like the more you, more you, the more you insist that the human authorial intent is the be all and end all the more pressure is exerted on the, on the Bible, the canon, more pressure is exerted on the unity of the canon. Because you, you are, if you, the more you stress the human author, the more you are pushed toward diverse theologies in the Bible. So there is a, there is a, um, there is a bit of a balance here. We, we don't just eliminate the human author completely. We don't, we don't say, well, you know, Moses just says what Isaiah says, which just says what Paul says. Each one has a unique contribution to make, but we're saying that because of divine inspiration, that contribution is to a single theology that coheres together and makes sense. Um, and also, sometimes, as the text from 1 Peter that I read earlier mentions, Sometimes the author, the human author, speaks 
more truly than he knows. He says things that go beyond his own conscious understanding. And yet the things he says are in the text because of inspiration. And as we look back later on that text, we see the meaning that even the author didn't see. And again, that's why it's important to stress that it's the text that's inspired, not the author. Can I ask another question? Yeah, the room. You hear me well? Yes, I can. Yes, is, this is about uh, the total no otherness of God that you spoke at the first section. That God is totally other. So if you could help me understand that, that idea a little bit better, because when we describe God, we see a lot of similarities between God and his creation or us. Uh, unless we say something like what I come across in Neoplatonism, where he says that God is beyond being. So that, in that idea, he's completely other. Uh, for example, we say that God is spirit. But angels are a spirit as well. We have a spirit as well. So in what, how can we explain the, that God is totally other while at the same time there are similarities? Like we, we say, we are created in his image as well. So how can we connect the two? Mm. Okay, so um, there is a, uh, a book written by Jean-Luc Marion called God Without Being. And um, that's a postmodern kind of book where um, God is seen as not, as not having being of any kind. So there are three ways that we can approach this. And the analogical language uh, scheme is basically uh, the, 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 the conceptual framework here for understanding the three options. We can say that God has being and we have being and that the being of God and the being of creation are in continuity with each other so that uh, that God's being is just more excellent than the being of creatures. So that would be similar to the univocal language. So if, if that were true, we could use language univocally. We could say that God is father univocally. Then, or we could take the postmodern approach and say that God is completely other. The cosmos has being, but God doesn't have being. God is, God is non-being. Well, I think that the problem with that is that it's very difficult to understand that in such a way as to maintain the reality of God. If God has no being whatsoever, then is God even real? So that would be the equivocal way of speaking. I, if we take the analogical approach, we would say that there is such a thing as divine being and there is such a thing as created being, but they are only analogically related. They're both real. So God does have being. God does have substance. God is a, God is one being in three persons and that but he's a being. He, he is being. He has reality. He has a nature. However, that nature can only be spoken of analogically. 
So when we well, when we when we say the word being, we of course are starting with a creaturely notion of being. And there is a sense in which God has, we can say that God has being, but the sense in which that is true is analogical. There's there's a narrow point of analogy, but there are many dissimilarities as well. So for example, just to use examples I used earlier, creaturely being is always made up of actuality and potentiality, a mixture of the two. But divine being is only pure actuality. So there's an analogical point of contact, but there's also difference. So I think that to um, um, the, 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 the task of theology is to speak of God in such a way as to avoid the two problems of either making him unreal or making him part of the cosmos. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to, to speak of God as having reality. There really is a God. He really exists. But he's not just a part of the world that we're part of. He is, he is above and transcendent, yet he is real. And um, this is what Augustine's conversion hung on this very point. Augustine was, uh, was struggling to understand how God could be real if he wasn't material. And it was only when Augustine came to understand that there's such a thing as a spiritual substance. In other words, when he came to understand that the soul or the spirit could be real without being material, when he escaped materialism, that was when he was able to be converted. Then he could understand the biblical truth. He could understand that God is real, but God is not just a part of the material cosmos. Um, so that, that's what theology needs to do, is to understand how, is to speak about God in such a way as to convey the idea that God is real, he has being, but that being is only analogically understood by reference to created being. Does that, does that get at the question at all? Yes, I, I, still, I still struggle with the, with the otherness of God. Uh, even speaking analogically, you have similarities there. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, the, the analogy of a father. So there is dissimilarity, but there is similarity. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able even, as you said, talk about God. So the fact that we can talk about God is because he's not totally older. <laughs> sort of. So there is, I want to say that he's totally older, but not in that metaphysical way that I'm We are, I'm thinking here that he's completely outside uh, of total outside of our relation with us, totally outside of relation with us. I don't know how to put it. Well, well, remember that that God is completely other and completely different, and the only reason that we can speak analogically about him at all is because of his self-revelation to us. If, if it weren't for revelation, we would be very limited in how, how we could talk about God. And so um, when God, the starting point of all theology is really God's own self-knowledge. God alone knows God completely. And so God, since God has total knowledge of himself, he's able to take some of his self-knowledge and, and reveal it to us. And, and so then 
what we get revealed to us enables us to speak analogically about him. And it allows us to say things that are true and be sure they're true, even though we can't comprehend God completely. So we're really dependent on revelation. And you might say, well, does that mean that natural theology is totally invalid and there's no such thing as general revelation? No, I would say that general revelation is still revelation. When when we when when Paul is talking, or when Psalm 19 talks about the heavens declaring the glory of God, that's general revelation. But that's still revelation. That's God speaking through his works, God revealing himself in his creation. That's not just us making stuff up. That, that is us responding to what God has done to take the initiative by revealing himself through his works. And if God had not revealed himself through his works, we wouldn't be able to understand anything about him. And if God had not revealed to us uh, in the incarnation, the Trinity, we would not be able to understand that we would not be able to speak of the Trinity. So all theology is really dependent upon revelation. And that's the, um, that's what guarantees the truth. Uh, not, not uh, you know, we don't put our trust in our imagination. We're putting, we're putting our trust in revelation at that point. Thank you. Anyone else? We're just about, I think we're 11.03, that's 3.03 your time, 4.03. Yes, it's 4.03 your time. So, um, so I'll take one more question and then we'll wrap up for today. Maybe I could ask a quick question, is that okay? Um, uh, I've got a lot of questions. <laughs> Maybe I should just uh, firstly thank you for, for, for what you've been teaching us, really a lot of helpful stuff there. Uh, but one question, um, does the way that the church fathers use the philosophy of their day teach us anything about how we are to use philosophy? Where is philosophy today? What Was that a unique period in time when philosophy Kind of reach something that's been lost today uh, and maybe also a unique time in terms of of the way that that issue of the being of god was hammered out um yeah maybe you could maybe you could answer along those lines okay well the um yeah i do not think and some people say this I, I i think this is wrong some people say that every age has its own philosophy and the church can equally well make use of whatever philosophy is dominant in its own culture at any time. Um, I think that's wrong because I don't think that all philosophies are created equal. I think that some are right, some are true, and some are false. Some are partly true, some are partly false. Some are true in one way and false in another. Some are false in one way and true in another. You just can't, you just can't generally say that whatever your philosophy is, you can go ahead and use that to express the truth of Christianity. So, uh, I also think, secondly, that we're, we live in a very, um, a period of great decline in philosophy. Philosophy in the 21st century in Western culture is almost dead. Um, most of what is called philosophy today is actually would be considered to be sophistry by the classical philosophers, not real philosophy. So um, postmodernism is a complete write-off. So we're, so there's a lot of problems. But what can we learn about the, the fathers? Well, I think what happens is that classical orthodoxy 
was formulated as a result of a discussion between the, 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 the church fathers and uh, a certain stream of theology called Platonism, broadly understood, including Aristotle and Neoplatonism and so on. But that conversation between classical Greek philosophy of a certain kind and Christian theology resulted in a synthesis um, in which Christian Orthodox theology is expressed making use of certain metaphysical ideas like persons and natures and, and, and being to the point where you can't, you can't unravel them now. Now, I know this is hard for some people to accept, but I don't think it's possible to unravel, to separate the Christian doctrine of God from certain metaphysical concepts. I just don't think it can be done. Um, it's like uh, pulling on a thread and having the whole thing come loose. It, it just won't work. To, to say, I want to keep the Christian Orthodox doctrine of God and the Orthodox doctrine of the two natures of Christ um, I want to keep all that and get rid of metaphysics. It just can't be done. So I, and, and this is where it's, it's sorely tempting because in our age, the metaphysics that was used by the Nicene fathers to state the, the, the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity and the orthodox doctrine of Christ, that metaphysics, Many of those metaphysical ideas are rejected by the majority of our culture today. So therefore, there's a lot of pressure on us to abandon those metaphysics, metaphysical ideas. And the book that I'm writing now, which will be the third in the series, Interpreting Scripture in the Great Tradition, Contemplating God with the Great Tradition, I'm now doing a third volume in the trilogy called Doing Metaphysics with the Great Tradition. And my, the argument of that book is that we cannot let go of the metaphysics that are bound up with classical orthodoxy without losing classical orthodoxy. In fact, I would say that the 20th century uh, was a grand experiment in trying to do just that. And the, the experiment has been run, the results are in, and it was a failure. So I would say that, that, um, that the, the going forward, the church needs to needs to teach certain metaphysical ideas um, as true and as part of orthodoxy. And of course, many people resist this because they, they really, they say, well, my goodness, Christianity is just going to become irrelevant because as culture moves on and leaves that metaphysics behind, there's gonna be no way for modern people to understand Christianity. And I think the problem is not understanding, the problem is accepting. And it's always been the same problem. So I, it, it's, this is not, if you think this is something new, I don't think it's true. The church fathers had to fight materialism the same as we do. Materialism was strong. Um, the church fathers, fathers had to fight um, relativism, just like we do. It was strong in those days. Um, it, we, 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 we have to accept the fact that Christianity is not compatible with every philosophy or every religion or every idea that's out there. And we need to become more confident 
that Christianity is true and classical orthodoxy is true. Um, and I think that if we, if we do that and we simply stand fast and maintain orthodoxy, I think that the culture around us is going to gradually collapse. I think Western culture is in the process of collapsing. So when the culture finishes collapsing, it's really important that there be a church there standing. Um, and that church will be the, uh, what will bring forth a new culture. And it's happened before in history. I mean, you know, the, the so-called dark ages, the period of the decline of the Roman empire in the West and the, and the uh, flood of the barbarians into the empire and so on. What was going on during those, during those centuries? The church was maintaining classical metaphysics, the Bible, theology, in the Benedictine monasteries of Europe. And initially, the Benedictine monasteries were islands of civilization in the midst of barbarism, but gradually cities, towns and villages and cities developed around those monasteries and the culture began to be reformed. And, and, the, and as, bar, as civilization rose again, uh, it, was, it was nurtured by Christianity. And that's where Christendom came from. The same thing could well happen again. You know, instead of getting in a rush to accommodate to a dying civilization, we should be concerned about maintaining the uh, Orthodox Christianity for the time when civilization, when 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 culture is ready to receive uh, from from the church once again. Uh, that which will make culture flourish. So I, I, I'm more concerned about maintaining orthodoxy and maintaining classical Christianity than I am in uh, worrying about whether a dying culture accepts me or not. Uh, I really don't think that, um, you know, whoever marries the spirit of the age becomes a widow in the next. And uh, the church has got to learn that lesson over and over and over again. Um, we, we, we we don't uh, we don't we don't win by accommodation. We win by them capitulating. I'm sorry if that sounds triumphalist, but that's how it seems to me in Revelation. Jesus wins in the end. Amen. Okay. Well, um, thanks for your attention, and it's been a long day. Tomorrow will be a shorter day. We will jump into. Isaiah and the interpretation of scripture. So we'll see you tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.